Hi, listeners. This is the 80,000 Hours Podcast, where we have unusually in-depth conversations about the world's most pressing problems, what you can do to solve them, and what to do if you're handcuffed to someone on the side of a cliff. I'm Rob Wiblin, Head of Research at 80,000 Hours. Recent events have had people thinking a lot more than usual about interstate conflict, which made it a no-brainer to interview economist Chris Blackman about his new book, Why We Fight. I followed Chris on his blog for many years, and I imagine quite a few of you listeners out there have read at least some of his work before. Why We Fight gives a really lovely overview of the academic theory that exists about when and why people choose violence, which is a super important topic that we've unfortunately never really covered on the show before. Before we get to that, I've just got two quick notices. First, at 80,000hours.org slash latest, you'll find a new, very informative article titled My Experience with Imposter Syndrome and How to Partly Overcome It, written by previous guest of the show, Luisa Rodriguez. If that topic sounds interesting to you at all, I recommend going and checking it out. Second, on the website, you'll also find that we are hiring a new full-time staff writer to publish, hopefully, well-researched articles that help people use their careers to contribute to solving the world's most pressing problems. That would mean you'd be working with Luisa Rodriguez and previous host of the show, Arden Kayla, among several others. The starting salary for someone with one year of relevant experience would be about £61,000 a year. And ideally, you would be able to live in London, although we are also open to people working remotely as well. Applications for that close in a couple of weeks on the 16th of May. And you can learn more about the role and apply if it sounds interesting to you at 80,000hours.org slash latest. All right, without further ado, I bring you Chris Blackman. Today, I'm speaking with Christopher Blattman, the Ramalee Pearson Professor of Global Conflict Studies at the University of Chicago. Chris is an economist and political scientist who has spent years studying the causes of violence in contexts as diverse as a civil war in northern Uganda, generalized insecurity in post-civil war Liberia, and gang violence in the city of Medellin in Colombia. That led him to write his new book, Why We Fight, The Roots of War and the Paths to Peace, which is going to be the focus of today's conversation. We probably won't get to all of this today, uh, but listeners may also be interested to know that Chris has gone out and coordinated randomized trials looking at the impact of cash transfers, uh, which he is an advocate of. And he's also studied the impact of so-called sweatshop jobs in Ethiopia, which he became more pessimistic about after conducting a trial to see how they really affected workers' income and health. Thanks so much for coming on the podcast, Chris. Thanks for having me. I hope to talk about what causes intergroup violence and how circumstances can be shifted to make turn to violence less appealing. Uh, but first, what are you working on at the moment and why do you think it's important? So, you know, I've just started dipping my toe into working in Mexico. One reason is there's a lot of violence there. I don't think it's quite studied enough. And, and so I just and it's obviously super important. It might be one of the biggest national security issues for the U.S. And there's a lot of people harmed. But mostly I... From all my international peace building work or research, I just see a lot of techniques that are used, like mediation between armed groups that just never get deployed, it seems, in U.S. cities. Hmm. It happens very little in Chicago. It's kind of a natural thing to try to mediate between warring factions. We don't do it. Some of that does happen in Mexico. And so I'm trying. that's a good example of, of ways in which I think Mexico is maybe at the frontier of like incorporating a lot of these lessons from international peace building into countering violence, and we could learn from that and maybe see that spread. Yeah. Is there a reason why this isn't used in, in U.S. cities? Is this kind of the, the classic thing that uh, the U.S. tends to be unusually reluctant to learn from studies overseas? Well, it's, it's not just the U.S. It's in the other parts of the Americas as well. It's done a bit in Colombia and in Medellin where I work, but I think one reason is I think we just have a blind spot to some degree. There's a, an instinct that this is just a, a more individualized problem and that this policing is the solution and, and mm. part policing is essential, but, but we can also do other things. I think the more 
legitimate thing that governments have to take a lot of care with is they have to they have to be careful not to sort of legitimize these groups too much. Hmm. So I think what you actually need are more civil society actors to step up and try to mediate. And that happens a little bit. I've followed a few people who do this in Chicago, but they're very few. They're hard to find. It's not very systematic. It's ad hoc. They do it in their spare time. They could be an ex-gang leader. They could be a social worker. They could be a minister. And they don't they don't have any particular skill or experience I mean, other than whatever they've acquired. Mm. And they don't they haven't had a chance to learn or share experiences with many other people. So it's very ad hoc at the moment. So I, I think that should probably change. Yeah, I think we'll uh, we'll get to some of those stories about kind of mediated peace between criminal groups later on. But let's dive right into your book, Why We Fight. Yeah, in that book, which is probably going to be out by the time this interview airs, uh, you aim to get people to think a bit more clearly about why it is that violence sometimes occurs and how it is that can, it can be prevented. I think you really succeed on that count. And in a sense, what you're saying is really straightforward and just fundamental, but it's kind of wisdom and modeling that I think is often really missing from, from discussions of violence and, and would add a lot of value. I should note for listeners at the outset, one thing you're clear that you're not doing is setting out to analyze individual or kind of heat of the moment violence in, in the book, because the causes of that are a bit more idiosyncratic and personal and, and probably better left mm-hmm. to psychologists than, uh, than political scientists potentially. But that, that is fine with me because kind of my personal interests here are primarily about how to prevent major wars between states, because they're most likely to be the risk factor for the collapse of civilization or, or human extinction. Right. Anyway, with that out of the way, First off, a lot of people have the perception that humanity is beset by violence. And if you watch the news, it might, it might did seem that way. But you argued that, in fact, doing violence to others absorbs very little direct human effort. Is there a way of quantifying kind of what fraction of all human resources are directed towards physical violence? That's a good question. You know, not that I know of is, is the short answer. Hmm. I mean, I think, you know, but you know what we don't even do related to this idea that actually war is kind of rare or the exception rather than the rule is that we we tend to overestimate how much conflict there is and and also how much effort's devoted to nonviolent negotiation, bargaining, posturing, all these sorts of things that we do. So we we forget, you know, we we pay attention to the fact that Russia has invaded Ukraine, which we should, just like a doctor should pay attention to the very sick people, but then we sort of overlook the fact that they there wasn't a war for them to sort of basically almost subsume or, or cow Belarus, or send peacekeepers into Kazakhstan, or Georgia, and the list goes on and on and on. So, so most of the time, these things are not settled. They're settled acrimoniously, but without violence. Yeah, I was thinking about how to answer answer, answer this question. I, I guess you, you have, I think, something like three or four percent, I think, of global GDP is spent on militaries directly. The, the yeah. interesting thing is that we spend all of this money, actually, like you know, training soldiers and buying all of this equipment and so on, and yet. 99% of the time, the soldiers are just sitting there, not engaged in, in any actual war at all. Right. So the thing that we're not saying is that people won't buy armaments. The The thing that your modeling uh, implies is that they'll rarely actually be used. I mean, this is, I think, one of the big insights just from strategic analysis or game theory in general, which is that most of the time fighting doesn't happen because it's really inefficient and there's better way to obtain that. But the big inefficient thing that does happen is arming, Hmm. right? That unless we can find a way to like commit really solidly to commit one another to disarm, that we're just going to invest an enormous amount of social resources in that. And that's really hard to avoid. I mean, I think that's what, when we do have states, when we do have alliances, that partly solves the problem. So, you know, you think about the Western Hemisphere, we have the United States, we have all of these countries in the Western Hemisphere, which are all sort of 
in an alliance with the United States, the U.S. is like the hegemon, and it helps keep the peace. Hmm. And as a result, none of these nations really need to arm against one another. And so that hegemonic sort of power and that sort of set of agreements and also their collective willingness to act means that we don't have to worry about going to war against one another. And so everybody can disarm against those. But then we still have to arm against the possibility of an invasion from some other hegemonic alliance led by Mm -hmm. Russia or China. So we do have solutions to this, right? But there's still partial solutions. Yeah. What's the uh, basic model that people should always keep in mind for why it is that violence should be expected to be really rare? Yeah. I mean, this is like, you know, the book is really my attempt to distill like insights, my own, but but mostly these insights from decades of researchers in psychology and game theory. The core one, you know, starts with people like Thomas Schelling and James Fear and a whole host of economists and legal scholars as well who studied strikes and courts. Because we're all talking about the same thing, which is there are things like warring, court battles, labor strikes that are inherently costly that we can negotiate to avoid so we can either bargain or fight. Right. And, and, and war is just politics by other means, in the mm. words of many, many famous generals, including von Clausewitz. And so that's what we have to remember, that this is a choice. And one of them is incredibly more costly than the other. So we can almost always find a negotiated settlement, whether we're officially negotiating or we're just posturing from afar. Right. We can always find something that makes us better off than fighting and flipping a coin to see who gets what we're fighting over. And so that's like the starting point. And so the the costs of war is like a is the gravitational pull towards peace. Yeah, that keeps us in that orbit. Right. Yeah. I guess applying this to the to the current cases is going to be on people's minds a lot. Are the Russia Ukraine uh, invasion? Right. I mean, if you think it's like been so costly for Russia and it's yeah. been so costly for, for Ukraine that it is remarkable that they couldn't reach a negotiated settlement that would be better for both parties than the absolute shit show that they're living through. I mean, that's what we do. We, we just have to approach it. Like that has to be our first instinct that it is remarkable because it shouldn't happen. And I predicted it wouldn't happen. I mean, only because I think that's always the best bet. I was wrong. And, and so we, in every one of these cases, we then have to say, okay, well then some other thing must have had such an incredible pull that it overcame those costs and yanked us out of that peaceful orbit. And, and then, then the search for, for those causes begins. Right. Yeah. So you offer five different explanations for how it is that despite the enormous costs that are involved in violence, and nonetheless, uh, states can end up end up using it, uh, or I guess, and also like small, smaller groups can end up using violence. I guess, if I had to really distill down why is it that violence is rarely used, it's because mm-hmm. I would say that when there's an imbalance of power, like the weaker party basically gives up. They, they, don't, they don't surrender completely. They don't give up everything, but they give up most of what the more powerful party wants. Yep. They appease them effectively. And so they don't lose a fight, but, but they've lost like part of what they wanted because the other side was just more powerful than them. Right. We, we all get what we deserve. And where deserve is not maybe some abstract notion of quality of justice in this. I mean, it would be nice, but where what we deserve is what we have the military or other power to sort of demand. And if we're weak, if we don't, you know, if we if we if we can't threaten to burn the house down, well, we're not going to get the house. Yeah. I mean, people often object to making concessions to bullies who want unreasonable yeah. things on the basis that it's appeasement and that's uh, that, that's meant to be really bad. Right. And I think the, the thing that I was just want to remind people is that like appeasement makes the world go round or appeasement is the thing that has prevented war from being a constant feature of human, well, just, like, a more constant feature of human life from the very beginning. Right. Appeasement is what we call compromise when we when we find the compromise repugnant. Yeah. It's just a, it's just a synonym. Yeah. 
You have this great story of compromise that prevented a conflict that could have broken out between gangs on the streets of this city, Medellin, in, in Colombia. Yeah, can you, can you briefly describe that, uh, how that situation played out? Sure. So this was, you know, we've been interviewing criminal leaders in prison and increasing out of prison to understand how this whole apparatus works. And one of the people we interviewed in Beja Vista prison was telling us a story that I later like to call the billiards war because it begins over a game of billiards. Um, in his cell block, there were two rival factions that were gangs on the street and a lot of their membership was, was in on the cell block. And they're playing, they're in the game room, they're playing billiards and he doesn't remember what happened, but the, but maybe it was just a petty dispute or something. One side pulls out their guns and shoots on the other and why they have guns is a whole other podcast. <laughs> but you know, when the dust settles, you know, miraculously, no one's killed. And of course, immediately, the other side prepares for retaliatory attacks. Everybody arms. There is a system, there are many gangs, there's a system of alliances. They'll activate their alliances. Everybody starts to arm. Is this the next big war in Medellin? Because there have been big gang wars two or three times in the past. And there is a cycle of retaliatory killings and things start to escalate. And then, then it doesn't. Uh, the billiard wars never happens because it's mainly because it's not in their interests. Also because there are these higher powers in Medellin, organizations that are some called, called bandas or razones, and, and they themselves have a negotiating table. It's a little bit like the UN Security Council. Hmm. It's not that effective, not that equal, but it kind of works some of the time. And they sit these two gangs down and are like, no, you, we're all going to lose too much if you guys fight. And we're not going to sell our drugs and you're going to get us embroiled in a war. And so we're going to... We're gonna we're gonna disincentivize you. We're gonna make you pay attention to the costs of war that you will you will inflict on everyone, and and that's one of the reasons. And that's hap- versions of that have happened many many times. Hmm. And that's one reason why, despite sort of being this, this valley filled with hot headed young men and, and and lots and lots of guns and armed groups, has a homicide rate half of that of Chicago. Yeah, I mean. An interesting thing is that so there's kind of tiny gangs that occupy individual blocks, and then those are kind of aggregated into these larger gangs that, that yeah. oversee a whole lot of kind of kind of block level organizations. It's a super common political form, both for gangs, but also internationally. Like I just hmm. remember I described America, the hegemon, keeping the peace with its own countries in the Western Hemisphere so that they don't have to fight with one another. It's kind of the same system of these whatever that, you know, political scientists would call hegemonic alliances. Like it's Mm. the big guy keeps the peace within their neighboring gangs. And then it's an easier negotiation problem between two hegemons than between, Mm. you know, a hundred, 300, 400. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And so the leaders of these higher level gangs are all together in a, in a cell block or or they're placed together in a, in a cell block because they're all in prison. And so there there are many cell blocks. There's, There's a leader's wing in every prison. And so there's many prisons around and all of them have a leader's wing. And so many of them are together. They're spread out across many leader's wings. What's interesting, this is not, you know, this is, we've, we've only gotten these accounts from the criminal side. We have not yet to sort of get someone from the government on the record, but there was a brewing conflict at one point where, they were going to war again. This is actually much more recently than the, the billiards war that didn't happen. Homicide rate had tripled in the city because these factions were actually starting to squabble and skirmish and maybe it was going to turn into all out war. And then all of a sudden one day, all of these leaders and all these prisons get transferred to new prisons. They're just going to move people around. But in order to do that, everybody has to go to the same cell block and actually be in the same place for three days before they all get moved around. Mm. And somebody gets arrested who's kind of a well-known mediator on the criminal side. He's a crook. And miraculously, he happens to land in the same 
cell block, right? <laughs> so it's all one grand coincidence. And and a week later, the homicide rate has, you know, gone back down to its like a third of what it was and, and back down to its normal level. So 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 you can you can prison state repression, the threat of state repression in prison is can actually be and often is a, a mechanism for peace building, but also criminal control in a lot of cities in the Americas. Yeah. So basically, I mean, I imagine that the, the thing that motivated them all to have these extended discussions in the prison and come up with some sort of peace arrangement is that it would be atrocious for business to go to war. I mean, the government will crack down on them. Yeah. They can't sell as many drugs when people won't come and visit them because they're worried about getting shot. It's yeah. just like it's, it's very financially costly to them. And ultimately, this organized crime is a business for them. Right. And the government can also threaten to make a lot of the a lot, not all, a lot of the leaders are in prison and the government can threaten to make their lives easier or harder. Yeah. So, so there is kind of a hegemon. Yeah. I mean, everybody's trying, you know, Medellin, this whole system works out much more peacefully than in most big cities. That's they're sort of at the tail end of really having and, and the state has managed to coordinate in this way without, I think, being co-opted or doing anything that I think is really distasteful. I think they've really managed to walk this line incredibly well of shrinking and, and reducing the strength of the groups as much as they can but still acknowledging that they're pretty powerful and having realizing that they have to negotiate in a way, but negotiating in a really one-sided ultimatum-like way that that isn't sort of legitimizing them as political actors. It's a really complicated problem to solve if you're a government, and, and Colombia's done it pretty well. So, yeah, I was, I was thinking about this model of how, you know, even groups that potentially don't like one another, you know, I don't know how these gang leaders get on. You know, they, they might mm-hmm. have some affection for one another in a sense because they're in the same industry. But there might also be a lot of, you know, bad blood from past events that cause them to personally dislike one another. Yeah. Obviously, so me and my rivals don't generally engage in shooting wars on the, on the streets. But I think all of us are subject to kind of this, a similar set of incentives here when it comes to interpersonal conflicts in social situations or when it comes to people who we don't like in, in, in a professional environment. So I think the, the closest equivalent to war in my life would be kind of disputes and spats on, mm-hmm. in, in public on, on Twitter and things like that, where there's people who don't like me and there's people who I don't respect, who I think are really wrong, or like maybe I think their, their projects are bad and on some level I would like to, to, to criticize them. But if we get into a, a shooting war where kind of we're both talking in public about how, how much we detest the other one and, and, and why, right. of course, it's like it's a cycle of, of retaliation in which both of us incredibly lose in terms of reputation. And at the end of the day, like what really is likely to be gained? It, it's not obvious that either of which party is going to win the, the PR battle on this so going into start. And so even people who really detest one another tend to just loathe one another in peace rather than engage in you know, a public public fights. Right. I mean, we no longer, if, if someone insults you on Twitter, you no longer challenge them to a duel <laughs> to the death, right? That's, yeah. And, and so, so that, that's eroded for a good reason, because that's not really an optimal. Now, those used to happen. And so that gets us down the road of like why violence does happen. But it's, it's, it's kind of obvious. Most people sort of look at dueling and say, yeah, yeah, that's not a great, that's not a good decision. <laughs> yeah. And they're right. They're right. It's the same logic. Yeah. I guess, to be honest, when people uh, insult me on Twitter these days, I, I don't even reply because <laughs> I, yeah. usually 90, 95% of the time I have the self-control to not, to not reply because it seems net negative. Right. Um, I guess, yeah, I guess that's the, the, the culture of dignity that we have. Um, can you lay out the analogy between war and, and human health that you have in the book? Right. So, so I, I mean, I think of it in a couple of ways. So one is that, is that listen, we, we kind of, we all know that most people are healthy and we would want doctors to get trained in the healthy functioning of the human body and and not forget 
and, and by virtue of being surrounded by sick people all the time, not forget that that healthy people exist. And unfortunately, we're in a world of of war doctors, right? People who are trying to sort of figure out and operate in these conflicts that somehow forget that there's this normal healthy state and that that's the default and that's actually the, the, the disease is rare. So that's like a first mistake we have to get past that many do, but not all. But then once we're there, you know, the funny thing about just a lot of violence reduction, I see this in the city of Chicago. I see this in in West African civil wars, there's this, there's often like a whole bunch of one size fits all solutions, right? So, mm. oh, you know, this city used violence interrupters, so we must need violence interrupters. Or this study used this new policing, hotspots policing, or focused deterrence, or some policing tactic. And that worked there, so we need to import that. You see that a lot in your cities. The other thing you see, the thing, you see the same thing, and there's like a package, there's this like humanitarian peacekeeping complex in Africa that says, okay, first we need a DDR program. No, first we need mediators. Then we need a demobilization and disarmament and reintegration program, DDR. Now we need a peacekeeping mission. Now we need a truth and reconciliation commission. And there's like this package. And and now Mm. we need like elections within two years of the conflict. And you're going to get it whether you like it or not. And if our doctor did that, if we just showed up the doctor and said, you know, I'm kind of sick. And he's like, you know what you need? Radiation therapy. And he's like, whoa, 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 whoa. (laughs) Like, I didn't even tell you. What was wrong with me? You didn't spend any time thinking about it. Like, what is going on? We like, there's this thing called diagnosis, but of course it happens because because how do you solve the disease if you don't have the diagnosis? Mm. And and somehow we forget that, and we just think, oh, it's all violence. It's you know, we need you know this again. You know, just like just like South Africa had a truth and reconciliation commission. We need a truth and reconciliation commission. Mm. It's it's bonkers, but it's it's super common. Yeah, I think an, another analogy to health that I find that I kind of have to constantly remind myself not to not to miss is that so death is rarely caused by a single malady, a single a single problem. Right. It's like you know someone who's eighty five dies of pneumonia nominally, right. but in fact they've died of so many different things that weakened the system until it was the a point that a, that a viral infection could actually kill them. And Correct. and and so it is with with conflict situations where you know there was some fight between two you know there was a fight in the bar that that, that started the war but right. actually that's that's just the last straw and what's really going on is like why was the patient so incredibly sick that that could spread exactly i mean i i think i used the example of like the first world war in my book where i talk about most people think oh the assassination of archduke Franz Ferdinand, you know and and that plus this sort of the the miscalculations of europe's mediocre leaders you know, sleptwalked the the whole continent and the world into war. And that's true in the same sense that pneumonia killed, you know, an 85-year-old person. But the only reason that person was so vulnerable, and the only reason we're so vulnerable to some wacky little idiosyncratic situation or leader miscalculation was because all the fundamentals were so fragile. But, you know, those fundamentals are less apparent, yeah. I think, at least less readily apparent. So it's not, I'm not blaming, you know, it takes ages for people to figure these out after the fact. And it's often hard to see in real time. So I have the luxury of summarizing thousands of people who have thought deeply about it for a century. So it sounds, you know, so of course that's going to sound wise, but that's sort of like the slow lesson that I think the whole, whole legion of social scientists have learned. 
Yeah. It's interesting that, so, so in the World War I case, where the temptation is to say, well, World War I was on some level caused by, by an assassination, the, the way that we instinctively check that is to think, well, what fraction of wars were preceded by an assassination? And mm-hmm. that is like moderately common. But we also need to think what fraction of, of assassinations are followed by a war? And yeah. that is actually quite uncommon. We need to look for disconfirming cases as well. And that is something that I, like, <laughs> even knowing this for many years, I find it yeah. so, so counterintuitive. There were several Balkan wars just in the few years before World War One, that did not trigger World War One, There were innumerable crises that were very similar in the 20 years previous that didn't cause World War One then. So something else was going on. Yeah. What are some things that people think lead to violence or, you know, are underlying causes of violence and wars that you are more skeptical of? Yeah. I mean, right away, you talked about how I'm not talking about interpersonal violence, even though actually that's my day job. A lot of it is actually studying and developing programs to counter interpersonal violence. And I do think like human emotions and passions in these hot reactive moments that do explain a lot of violence Hmm. are really central to understanding a lot of interpersonal violence. And not just that, my relationship with my nine-year-old son and whatever, and and whether we argue with our boss or our wife or whatever is really important. And I think it's not that it's, it's not that it's irrelevant when it comes to big groups. I just think it's far from, the 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 souls that of all of our human errors and foibles and frailties, it's probably the least of them because it gets mediated by big bureaucracies because uh, fades over time. It fades over time, and you know it's you know maybe some monarch getting angry in 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 July or August nineteen fourteen helped contribute to World War One, but by nineteen seventeen, like presumably like hot headed reactive violence and passions were were not what was going on. Yeah. So, so that's that's a good example of one that I think is maybe overstated. We tend to take our interpersonal violence and then we project that onto nations, and and I don't think that's a good guide. Yeah. When, when I read that part of the book, I was trying to think: Why would it be that people are biased towards thinking about these kind of personal emotions mm-hmm. as a driver of large scale conflict? And I, kind of two things jump to mind. One is that. You know, the thing that we have experience of all the time is interpersonal interactions, like our interactions with our spouse, our interactions with our boss, yes. where these personal feelings are are more key. And so we're yeah. building this analogy up to a much bigger scale. And that's, that is, to me, a version of the availability bias of like, mm. that's what we take what's available and we think that's more common. And also our, our tendency, what I call projection bias, is we then project that onto other situations, maybe erroneously. So what it is, is we actually form and hold strenuously onto erroneous beliefs, despite contrary evidence. And that, not the passions, it's our ability to sort of draw the wrong conclusion from incomplete information and then project it to other people and situations. That is the misperception. That's one of the things, that's one of our... One of, one of the, these causes of war. It's these biases to have persistently erroneous beliefs that really matter in group behavior and individual behavior, and the passions fade away. So I want to push us towards focusing on the mistakes bureaucracies and military generals and accountable presidents make all the time, not the ones that get filtered out. Yeah. I think the other big contributor for why it's natural to reach for these personal explanations is that it's something that you can do without having a lot of like very specific detailed knowledge about the strategic situation. So so in the case of Russia, Ukraine, in order to like 
think about this in a systematic or strategic way, you would probably want to know, like, you know, what is the Donbass? Where is the line between Ukraine and Russian control? The Minsk Accords, what was in them? And to what degree were they agreed? Like, what is Zelensky's policy towards Russia? All things that I don't really know that much about now, and I certainly didn't know much about in January. Yeah. Uh, but of course, I can always reach, like, without knowing any context about the specific case, I can always say, oh, it's because of Putin's personality. That, that's mm-hmm. an easy thing to, to say. Yeah, I think that's, and it's easy to understand that that too is a little bit of the availability heuristic going on. But, but yeah, I think it permeates everything we do. Yeah. Some other drivers of war that I hear people talk about uh, that you're kind of skeptical of include climate change and, and, and water scarcity. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can you talk about why it is that you're skeptical of this idea of, uh, of water wars? So I think, listen, scarce water, any scarce resource is something which we're going to compete over. Hmm. right? If there's a little bit, we'll compete over it. If there's a lot of it, we will still probably find a way to compete over it. And the competition is still going to be costly. And so we're always going to strenuously compete. It'll be hostile. It'll be bitter, but it shouldn't be violent. And the fact that water becomes more scarce, sort of like any resource becomes more scarce, doesn't take away from the fact that it's still costly to fight over it. And so, so there's always room for that deal. So, so the fact that our water is shrinking in some places, we have to be skeptical. And, and so, like, what is actually causing this? And then empirically, I think when people take a good look at this and they actually look at all these counterfactual cases where there's water and it didn't break it, we just don't, we just don't see that, like, I think water scarcity is a, is a persistent driver of war. The same is a little bit true of climate change, but where the, the theory is sort of the same. It's not clear why things getting hotter or colder should, how it affects interpersonal violence is pretty clear. Hmm. But why it should affect sustained years-long warfare is far less clear. That said, unlike water wars, the empirical evidence is a little bit stronger that something's going on. But to me, it's just then a bit of a puzzle that still needs to be sorted out. Because once again, the fact that like we're getting jostled by unexpected temperature shocks, unexpected weather events. It's not clear why that should lead to sustained political competition through violence rather than finding some bargain solution. Yeah, I, I remember when I first heard this idea of, of water wars and some like alarm bell went off in my head and I've kind of been skeptical of it from the beginning. And, mm-hmm. and I think one, one trigger that sets off is, okay, so water will be more scarce in some places in the future than it is now. Fair enough. But lots of resources are scarce now and water exactly. is scarce in some places now. So why aren't people fighting wars all the time about all of the things that are already scarce, including in some cases water? I mean, in so, occasionally they do, but mostly they don't. And it's presumably because violence is incredibly costly and, a, and an agreement is better and that will remain true in future right i think you said it better than me (laughs) um another thing that people think uh drives violence is having men in power rather than rather than women Mm -hmm. the the evidence on that is is a little bit makes it kind of an interesting picture can you explain that yeah i mean it's more like it's just it's more of a complex and so there's this instinct that we see like men are obviously more aggressive in interpersonal violence Mm. most of the soldiers are are men most of the war leaders and generals are men so so it's totally natural to try to extrapolate from individual aggression to group aggression. But but it's sort of like the passions. Like, I think aggression is just one of these emotions that I think gets filtered out in longer groups over long periods of time and long fights. And so it's not surprising to me that when people actually compare the likelihood of going to war with male or female leaders, that, that they're just as likely to go to war with one another. And when people have found clever natural experiments in current times or history, when it was randomly, quasi-randomly a woman leader or male leader, they too are not necessarily any much more likely to go to violence, go to war. 
So that may not matter very much. Now, people could retort, and they should, and they could, to say, well, these are just women leaders. This is not actually like an integrated government where, and maybe that would be different. You know, we don't have, we don't really have 50% or have, you know, women represented to their proportion of the population in almost anywhere in history. So it's not the fair empirical comparison. But I think this theory is strong that we should, we shouldn't expect this individual aggression to become dominant. But I think I absolutely think that enfranchising women is going to make people more powerful. It sort of comes to, you know, we, we talked about what, what anything that causes war is going to be something that helps you overlook costs. And one big category of that is if a leader is an autocrat, for in the extreme, a leader is an autocrat, bears very few of the costs. You have an unchecked leader, bears very few of those costs. Why would they, why would they consider them in that calculation? They're going to be far too ready to use violence. They may even have a private incentive, something that benefits them, not others not their group, to go to war. Well, now let's think about a democratic leader where only half of the population gets to vote for them. Maybe it's mm. only men, which of course has been true in many times and places. Maybe it's only one ethnic group or only one religious group. Well, there's half that population is going to be ignored. Their interests, the cost of war that they bear is going to be ignored. And so the leader is going to be far too ready to use violence and far more vulnerable to other failures and breakdowns that lead the group into war. And so anything that makes them more accountable to a wider swath of the people including women, irrespective of whether they are more or less likely to support violence in surveys or something, is just going to make the world more peaceful. And so that's like the first order thing we should be thinking about. Yeah. In part of the book, you suggested that poverty probably doesn't increase war initiation, just for the obvious reason that just because you're poorer or just because there's less stuff to go around doesn't make it more appealing to fight versus reach an agreement. Right. The same, the same argument with the water scarcity. Right, exactly. The scarcity of other things. But you thought it could lead to prolonging wars or mm-hmm. more escalated wars. And the argument was poverty reduces incomes for nonviolent occupations. You might be mm-hmm. like, leave the farm because the weather's terrible and, and, and go get a military job as well. But I was thinking, like, doesn't that reduce incomes from violent occupa- occupations basically by the same amount? So, mm-hmm. you know, in, in a poor country, if your side wins the war, then there's less GDP to steal. There's, and at the same time, you know, if the economy's doing badly, then you, yeah, so you like grab less by winning and there's less tax revenue to go around to get to pay your salary as, as a yeah. soldier. So you might think that this, this effect kind of cancels out. It could cancel out and it might be why I don't think the effect is super strong in the data. But often the people fighting and the people leading those who are fighting are able to capture most of these, whatever revenues and resources there are, are able to capture those and they, they, make, they make sure that the people with guns get paid first. Hmm. And so I do think there is this this fact that the, the the gains and the assets in society will not be equally distributed in that context. And so so that's probably what's going on in these cases. But I agree. I mean, I, I just think the relationship between poverty or sudden adverse shocks to income and violence in general are not particularly strong in any circumstance. It's only in this one circumstance where they do seem to play a, some role. Yeah, I suspect that people really overestimate the causal channel from poverty to conflict because we observe a strong correlation, but it's because the causal chain is more often the other way that conflict leads to to poverty, and and you you kind of can't can't easily observe which one came first. Right, and then economists, you know, which is the other hat I wear, you know, like to you know finding natural experiments with changes in income is actually a lot easier than finding changes in a lot of the other factors that I think do drive conflict. Because you can measure commodity prices and you can measure a temperature shock and you can measure whether or not rainfall changed and and destroyed your crops. And so we tend to just write a lot of studies about how Mm. poverty and economic shocks 
affect conflict because we can. And then we don't write studies about the things that are hard to measure, that the causes are a little harder to pin down. And so we tend to like obsess. And then we make a lot out of some statistically significant correlation that maybe isn't actually that even close to important and only applies to some cases because it's the thing we can measure. And and I think that's a, been a blind spot in in research over the last 20 or 30 years. Yeah. When I try to think about what is causing a specific conflict and what might be able to help to cause it to stop, I try to put myself in this odd headspace where I mentally set aside which side is right, <laughs> which mm-hmm. side is which side is just and which side is unjust. Because I think on that kind of positive question, I guess this is what economists call it, positive rather than normative, like merely descriptive question of like yeah. what's the what uh, what would cause it to stop and like what what caused it to start. The question of who is right and wrong actually just doesn't doesn't really affect that at all. Um, mm-hmm. and, and at the same time, having those normative facts in mind, like who who do you agree with and who do you disagree with, can kind of strongly cloud our judgment on these on these non normative questions. Is that something that you also try to do? I mean, hundred percent. In fact, I I think I do it too naturally now and too well. Hmm. In the sense that I I think I've realized in talking about the contemporary conflicts where passions run high and people have. Uh, my dispassionate discussion and finally people get very upset at. Yeah. But I always have my own private views. And so it's this hard thing. I think to be a good social scientist and to actually analyze things clearly, you have to do that. But more importantly, I think you have to do that even if you are the general on one side or the other. You know, they call it strategic empathy. You need to try to understand the conflict from the point of view of your enemy in a very clear-headed way, partly to avoid these kinds of availability and projection biases and other misperceptions that will just lead you to make strategic errors. All right, let's now go through the five causes of war that you lay out in the book. I think this is the most important thing for uh, for listeners to remember. Mm-hmm. Um, hopefully many of you will go away and read the book and get and get all of the details. And then, then hopefully these five causes will stick in your mind. Mm-hmm. But if you don't, uh, this is a really important section to, to keep in mind. And so we'll try to give like specific names to these five different phenomena, these five different drivers. The first one that you lay out, you call unchecked interests. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that's basically where there's a divergence in interests between the people who decide to go to war and the people who experience the consequences of the war. Yeah. Can you briefly explain that phenomenon? Right. So it's it's a little bit like what I described in the context of women in war, which is to say, you know, think of an autocrat, think of a Putin, for example. If the main thing that is keeping us from going to war are the costs of war, and the person who makes that decision, in this case a personalized autocrat, doesn't have to bear the costs of everyday soldiering and death or deprivations from sanctions, some of them, right? He's he's bearing a lot of pain, let's make no mistake, Hmm. and risk, but doesn't consider all of them, well, that's going to really reduce the incentives for peace and make him ready to use violence. And what's worse is when the circumstances around war give those leaders a private incentive, something that benefits them to go to war, but not their group. In Liberia, certain natural resources, so not water, but diamonds, also timber, a few other goods that could be exported in this war economy, give warlords an incentive to go to war and stay at war because they they can use that disorder to enrich themselves. That's a classic example. While that could be going on in a place like Russia, I think it's more likely that there's some reason for invading Ukraine, for example, that gives a private incentive. It may be a belief that this will entrench their power and solidify their political control and continue to leave them unchecked. And so that's, that is that first logic. It's really simple. Costs of war keep us from fighting. Leaders who ignore costs because they can are more ready to fight. 
Yeah, you have this nice example of how in kind of provoking the French and Indian War, mm-hmm. uh, which I guess then kind of blew up, although I don't know what it was causal, but it, it kind of yeah. expanded into the Seven Years' War between Britain and, and France. And then also helping to launch the US War of Independence, George Washington actually had a lot to gain personally mm-hmm. uh, and that this might have influenced his judgment. Can you explain that? Right. So, I mean, I don't think this is the primary explanation for the American Revolution, but I, I think we, we can't ignore it because it's factor. And I wanted to use something that was counterintuitive for people. It's really easy to sort of think, oh, that Liberian warlord, hmm. of course he's self. We would never do that. And I wanted to sort of take one of the most iconically and high integrity characters in history and sort of point out that even they were somewhat unchecked. Because certainly once, even well, certainly after the American Revolution was run, most Americans didn't vote, couldn't vote. Certainly they weren't holding George Washington and the other founding fathers fully accountable in the years running up to the revolution. And what's interesting, and many historians have noted, is that most of the founding fathers had a big economic stake in independence or a very particular you know, trade and, and tax policy with Britain. It's no coincidence. And coincidentally, a lot of the people who remained loyalists had economic stakes in union with Britain and with the British policies that the Britain wanted to impose on the United States. And so that surely influenced, along with all of the other more noble motives, that played a role both in their willingness to launch the revolution, but it also played a role. His, you know, Washington was like a notorious land speculator. He was a consumer. He wanted the fanciest clothes, the fanciest carriages, the land trappings of wealth. He pursued that his entire life. And his pursuit of that land wealth is one of the things that set off the, the French and Indian Wars. And so we just can't ignore it. Yeah. So so Washington, among others, was going out west trying to claim territory as his personal property, uh, yeah. which involved taking it from the Indians and the and the French, potentially. Mm-hmm. The, the British weren't necessarily keen on this because this could lead to a very expensive conflict. And I think towards the, the point at which they were claiming independence, the, the British, he said, were interested in returning some of the land that Washington had claimed for himself personally. Right. It was a private illegal militia who had appointed a junior member of their sort of elitist clique of Virginia families to go off and seize land from the French and Indians. It was sort of like a an errant splinter group that was provoking your, if you're in the British point of view, this like errant, selfish, materialistic splinter militia was going off and provoking the enemy unnecessarily and was going to bring everything crashing down in their own self-interest. And that's like, to some approximation, exactly what happened. Yeah, I'll uh, stick up a link to, to a really good resource on that for those who, who want to learn more about that story. The second cause of violence you point out is that people often get value out of war kind of above and beyond any material gains that they might mm-hmm. achieve if they win. And you, you call this category intangible incentives. And I, I guess I, I might think of it as kind of violence as a, as a terminal value or harming the other yeah. party as a, as a terminal value. Yeah, well, what are some of those intangible incentives for armed conflict? Yeah, this is like a really diverse category. And, and so I, and I never found a label I loved. And so intangible incentives was the best of a bad bunch that I think captured. You could think of it as violence as a terminal category, but you could also think of it as violence. Just the thing that you value is actually not violence, but it's something that only violence can deliver. Hmm. And so glory is an example. Vengeance is another example. There may be certain nationalist or ethnic or religious ideals about extending the power of your group, exterminating the heretic, exterminating the heretical view, racial purity. So these have been more or less noble, many of them less noble throughout history. And all of these stories 
as different as they are, share this similar logic, which is there was something ethereal. It wasn't like the material country or territory or economy or policy space that you were battling over. There was some value that you achieved through violence like glory or that only violence could deliver you. But maybe the more important one, I think, for understanding a lot of conflicts, especially a lot of contemporary conflicts, which is also an intangible incentive, is that there's some ideal that we hold that we refuse to compromise on. So the Ukrainians refused to compromise on their liberty. The American revolutionaries refused to compromise on their liberty. And the Taliban refused to compromise, not so much on their liberty, but on a set of principles. Um, the American administration, when dealing with the Taliban, refused to compromise on a certain set of principles of, of justice and of, of punishment of, of a grave crime. And so our intransigence on a principle is a kind of intangible incentive that essentially says, well, there's a bargain to be made that we should accept semi-sovereignty as an American revolutionary or as a Ukrainian because they're strong and we're weak. Hmm. And I refuse. That is the sensible compromise. War would be costly. But because I value this ethereal thing so greatly, I will fight for it. And I will not regret it afterwards. It's not a mistake. I, I the principle Stand of by the, my choice. Exactly. I stand by my choice. And that and, and I think that's very powerful. I think we can understand some of some fraction of the these wars through these instances of noble or ignoble intransigence. Yeah, there's this idea that a lot of people have heard that kind of, you know, enlightenment values uh, mm-hmm. should cause us to fight less often. But I think it's actually like very theoretically ambiguous because mm. enlightenment values not only say, well, it's, yeah, sure, it's bad to kill a random person overseas. Yeah. It does come with that. However, it also kind of says that there's these, at least in many interpretations, that there's these inviolable principles around human rights. And if that's the case, if you're just kind of not willing to make a dirty bargain with a dictator in order to maintain peace where, you know, you sell some strangers down the river, you allow the dictator to, to get away with what you regard as, as human rights violations. If that's not on the table because you consider, because you're like too concerned with the kind of moral purity based on the values that you have based on the Enlightenment, then you might be willing to go to war more because you have values that are kind of global, universal. You care about what's happening in these other right. countries where a purely self, self-interested country might not, not care at all what's happening in, in Rwanda or what we you know what atrocities are occurring elsewhere. Yeah, I think that's a nice way to encapsulate something I've been writing on just to sort of understand the product of, of the Enlightenment and this humanitarian revolution is both peacemaking and not. It's peacemaking because it makes us care about the other side rather than ignore it. We, we, we always care about the cost to ourselves, maybe not to the others. So any regard we have for the well-being of others is going to, and any repugnance we have for violence is going to make us less willing to fight because it's more costly. But you're right. It leads to more idealism and intransigence, potentially. And I think that's absolutely the case. And that's why I think we may see, you know, I hate to say it, it has a little echo of this sort of class of civilizations kind of story to it, Hmm. which is to say different ideologies will fight. But I think it's different. It's sort of saying that this triumphant thing that at least some of the world has, has accomplished, which is this human rights revolution, is to the extent that we're really rights based and, and some principles we will never compromise on is going to make peace more difficult in the future. Yeah, I mean, you can imagine that this human rights ethics approach could lead to less conflict when you have a really strong hegemon that has those values and basically cows everyone into into going along with them and everyone else yeah. is willing to accept that. But in a multipolar world, we have all sorts of different groups with what they regard as you know, pure moral values that they are not allowed to compromise on, and they're different ones, yeah. <laughs> then you should expect just like constant riven conflict, more or less. 
Right. It's the tension between real politic, which is just the willingness to make these bitter, unequal compromises in order to preserve the peace and in the pursuit of your own self-interest and these ideals. Yeah. So some of these kind of preference or these like intangible incentives that you talk about, to me, they seem downstream of a sort of game theory of conflict. So, mm-hmm. so for example, you know, uh, having a desire to retaliate against a party that, that wrongs you. Yeah. It seems like you could say that's kind of an intangible incentive, like revenge is an intangible yeah, yeah. incentive. But you might also think that actually this is a game theoretical strategic thing, because in order that people not attack you in the first place, you have to credibly be able to commit to punish them, even if it's not in your interest, like narrowly after the fact. Yeah, should we put maybe some of these things in a in a different bucket or think of some of them as kind of intangible incentives and other ones as strategic considerations? Well, I mean, so I think you're absolutely right. And this is like the, if we, that's the 201 level of, <laughs> of like the argument, but this is the, the kind of podcast. So I would say, first of all, I would say there's nothing about intangible incentives that isn't strategic, hmm. all right? Which is in the sense that like we value what we value. And so, you know, when, when you're trying to sort of, through game theory or, you know, just basic reasoning, sort of think about how people are going to act. You have to sort of assume, you have to understand what they value. And so intangible incentives is just introducing a whole bunch of sort of unusual, non-standard things, but there's nothing irrational about them. The things we're going to be strategic about is maybe one way to think about them. Mm. But what you correctly point, so that might be glory or, or any, or some intangible ideal. But what you correctly point out is that one of these, which is vengeance, seems like it's the consequence of actions, that it's almost can be generated by conflict. And that's true. It means that it's the kind of thing, like, I think we are programmed as a species to be vengeant. Hmm. A lot of our social norms and cultures vary, but they can really augment that as well and make us even more vengeant when wronged. And so if you're engaged in a game if you're engaged in a strategic interaction with an adversary, you actually don't want to make them vengeful, hmm. right? You don't want to do something that's seen as so unjust that they want to attack you because that's going to make them ignore some of the costs. Hmm. And then you're going to find it harder to get a bargain. And more importantly, they're going to refuse because they're willing to pay some price just to punish you. They're going to refuse a whole bunch of bargains that are advantageous to you. So every time you make your enemy vengeful, you're actually you're actually changing that range of deals available to things that are just more and more disadvantageous to you before the, because you just want them to stop. And, and so we should never do that. We should never start that kind of feud and, and create those cycles of, of vengeance. And often we don't because we can kind of look to, we're like, well, you know, I can try to repress them, but they, maybe that'll backfire and then they'll want to turf me out. And, and, and so, or maybe I shouldn't invade because then they'll get really angry and they'll want to punish me no matter what. Hmm. Right. And so they kind of backwards induct and they decide not to do it. So then you have to explain that first unjust act. Right. And subsequent unjust acts. And I think you then do that not through an appeal to things that are misperceptions and irrational, that people make mistakes or that groups make mistakes. And so you you get, so there, it's a complex interaction between two of the five logics. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, this is this is a part of the book that, that I love and I hadn't, hadn't really thought about before, is that, well... Actually, this is a feature that shows up again and again, and I'd like to return to, which is that you try to make things safer on one margin, and then you make them more dangerous in a different way, mm-hmm. or you or you make things more dangerous in one way, and then there's this offsetting behavioral effect elsewhere that that actually makes it makes it safer, and, and it's ambiguous, like what the what the net sign is. So, in as much as people want revenge, in as much as they can get into these feuds where they hate the other side and they're willing to pay costs just in order to harm them, you might think, well, that creates a very unstable situation in which uh, wars are often going to escalate and and be exceedingly costly and be common. 
However, if everyone knows that, if they know that, like, even if they do a tiny slant to the other side, that's yeah. going to get them to attack back and then your side will be riled up and they'll attack back and so it's going to escalate, then you really don't want to even slight the other side at all. And so plausibly, this desire for vengeance could lead to peace yeah. <laughs> because everyone's going to be so cautious about studying it. It's, it's kind of like, you know, nuclear weapons, yeah, potentially exactly. keep, keeping the peace. Yeah, sociologists and anthropologists call this peace in the feud. Right. Which is that the thread of setting off one of these cycles of violence keeps people from engaging in those acts. But then if you do set it off, it's a real doozy. Yeah. And that's kind of like the story of any kind of military technology and arming. And as you say, nuclear weapons, like nuclear weapons will make war really costly. So it makes it less likely. But if it happens because of some other reason, it's going to be really bad. Yeah, I think... This kind of offsetting behavior phenomenon, I think it shows up elsewhere where let's say that you you elect a president of the United States who's extremely peace-loving and, extreme, and, and just says, I'm incredibly reluctant to ever use nuclear weapons or extremely reluctant to go to war. Yeah. Then the other side can be like, oh, great. Well, we're going to take advantage of that. And we're going to like push up against the boundaries really hard. We're going to, you know, we're going to invade Taiwan. We're going to like do all these other things because yep. they've declared that they're not going to do anything unless we do something even more extreme than that. And so they walk up to the boundary again yeah. <laughs> because they have a particular desired risk, like a level of risk of war. And then that president who's really dovish actually hasn't reduced the, the net risk of war. They've just changed what fraction of the, of the um, spoils they received. Right. Which is why it's we don't fight, but we get stuck in this trap of escalating arms at the very least. But it's also, you know, it is a strategy. I mean, if you want to improve your bargaining position vis-a-vis -a, vis -a -vis a, like a, an, an adversarial nation mm. and you elect a hardliner or someone who's a little bit crazy and unpredictable to become president, that raises the risk of war, but it also improves your bargaining position. And and that's a classic sort of, you know, that's very easy to derive from, from game theory. And then we can think of lots of examples. And, you know, a lot of people criticize, you know, Trump for his, oh, you know, I'm going to keep people guessing. And so it's not clear that's the right strategy. It's certainly a risky strategy. But I mean, it was in some sense electing a hawkish, somewhat unpredictable, seemingly crazy and unconstrained, somewhat unconstrained leader is a bargaining strategy vis-a-vis -vis allies and enemies. And and we can disagree whether it's the best bargaining strategy, but it is it is one. Yeah, I slightly messed up the order here because I feel like we're, th th this, uh, this number two is slightly blowing into number three, uh, which is uncertainty, basically. Mm -hmm. So yeah, the third cause is kind of about this issue that parties don't know exactly how militarily powerful the other side is. And they also don't know how much they're willing to suffer or risk in order to defend their interests. Yeah, can you help explain how that uncertainty makes violence more likely? Right. So this is this is a world where we can say, okay, let's assume there's no unchecked leaders. The, the leader is faithfully representing their group, right? Let's cross that off. Let's assume there's no intangible incentives, right? All we live in is a world where two groups are uncertain about the strength and resolve of the other. So surely we won't have war then, right? And and the answer is actually a lot of the time we won't because they have a real incentive. You know, they might start off thinking, oh, I think I'm pretty strong and they're weak, but erroneously, well, I have incentives to actually invest in information. Like I, I'm actually going to spend a lot of time with spies and intelligence, and I'm going to spend a lot of time carefully looking at their signals because I know... I don't want to fight. And I know they don't want to fight. And so we're going to try to give each other credible information so we avoid this bad outcome. And so uncertainty isn't like a inevitable path to fighting. But what happens in this situation is you're like, wait a second, are they really as strong as they're telling me? You know, they ran those military parades. They did those border skirmishes. They have these big public investments in arm, whatever, all these things that they're signaling to me. Is that a bluff, right? It's a little bit like poker. 
right? And so in that circumstance, because you can't really verify amidst this uncertainty. And so just like in poker, when you're not sure what hand your opponent holds, you might fold and you might decide sometimes it's worth it to call and see and escalate, escalate, then call. And, and the same is true in warfare. It's it's sometimes it makes sense to escalate and call amidst this uncertainty. And in fact, it makes sense to be somewhat unpredictable in that just like you're unpredictable in your bluffing and you're unpredictable in your folding and calling. And so it creates an environment where it's in your strategic interest to sometimes fight. Yeah. So I was thinking about this and and how to model it. I vaguely remember uh, looking at kind of game theory models of poker back when I was an undergrad. Right. I think actually, maybe rather than think about poker, because poker has various complications, you can instead imagine a game where two parties are kind of rivals. They each draw a number between one and 100. Then they kind of do a poker thing where whichever party has the higher number wins if they both have to end up showing their number, but they don't know one another's number. And they could decide whether to kind of up the ante or call or fold. In that kind of game, sometimes even when you draw a really no, no, low number, like five or ten, and you're almost certain to lose if the other party calls you, yeah. then you still want to. Then you want to bluff because if you're, if you say you always raise when uh, your number is above fifty, and you always fold when it's below fifty, then you're completely predictable, and the other party can exploit that total predictability. Right. And so you end up. I, I think you, you say kind of the best thing is a mixed strategy where you kind of raise. In some proportion, there's going to be some function, but, but you raise proportional to like whether you drew one or hundred. So you might like always raise if you draw a hundred and occasionally do it if you draw one and uh, somewhere in between if you draw 50. Is that right? Yeah. I mean, it, it varies a lot depending how you set up the game. And, but, but basically when you're in this situation where you're really, really weak and you know you're weak, but there's some uncertainty, you're much less likely to bluff than when, when, when say you're potentially more evenly matched. Like that's just, but you, but you're right that the incentives are never zero yeah or seldom zero and sometimes they're zero but there's whole ranges where where they're not zero and that is dangerous territory now after the fact because that the uncertainty always gets resolved Hmm. you know when the fighting begins as it has and a lot of the uncertainty has been resolved in the current russian invasion of ukraine and then we look back at those those bets as mistakes. Yeah. Oh, we were misinformed. And you're like, well, maybe we were guessed wrong. Maybe we had bad information. Maybe we were naive. Maybe we made had all sorts of misperceptions. But also it was very tremendously uncertain. And and we didn't really know. So we can't just say that bets that where we got lucky were good ones and bets where we got unlucky were bad ones. That's just that's a bad way to learn from the past. Yeah. You know that this kind of uncertainty, bluffing, uh, calling model predicts kind of frequent but brief skirmishes but mm-hmm. it, but it, it has a harder time explaining prolonged wars uh, why is that so it does two things one is it it predicts actually a lot of potential violence which i wouldn't even which could be skirmishes just to capably signal to your enemy how strong you are right and so a little skirmish in kashmir or a little skirmish between on the chinese india border or a little skirmish here a little skirmish there in the book, I give the example of gangbanging, which through this this now friend and colleague who's a social worker and peacemaker in Chicago, but used to be a gang leader. He'd go into the neighboring gang's neighborhood and sh- shoot up buildings. Um, that's violence. That, that's a way of communicating how strong you are. That's what this colleague of mine was doing. Then, in addition, if you, despite all those signals, you're still not sure about the bluff, you start fighting, typically any of the uncertainty gets resolved pretty quickly, right? So we were really unsure how strong the Russian military was. We were really unsure how plucky and organized the Ukrainian military was. We were really unsure about the unity of Western sanctions. 
that now we know, right? Cleared up pretty fast. We, that we found out. So now a lot of the uncertainty is resolved. And so we would anticipate that if uncertainty was the main source of fighting or one of the main sources, that it might wrap up pretty quickly. Sadly, pretty quickly doesn't always mean a week. It might mean five months, especially if there's other things leading us to fight. But very seldom do wars go years and years and years. Yeah. Um, kind of interesting effect of this dynamic in wars and also in negotiations around wars or indeed any kind of conflict, no, you know, even even just trade negotiations between countries, yeah. is both sides have really strong incentives to give like extremely misleading impressions about their negotiating position, about mm-hmm. like what they would accept and what they won't accept. So I noticed this, you know, during the Brexit negotiations between Britain and the, and the EU, EU a couple of years ago, it constantly seemed like they were never going to make a deal, like it was impossible that they would agree on something. And I learned over time to just basically completely ignore this. I thought that this news was worthless. Yeah. <laughs> it was like worse worse than the paper it was written on. Because of course, both sides always want to claim that they're right about to walk away from the table right. so they could, because that improves their negotiating position. And basically, as far as I could tell, for someone like me, the situation is inscrutable. Yeah. There is actually just no way for me to know. It's true. That's the, that is the terrible. Now, that choice to bluff is also a strategic choice, so they don't do it always, but it, mm. it certainly pays off in a lot of circumstances. And we all do it. If we're going to buy a used car, right? You know, that's exactly the same kind of everyday instinctual bargaining. Oh, I could never pay more than this. Oh, I could never get it off the lot for that much. And and so it's it's the same posturing because there is some uncertainty. I don't know exactly how much did this dealer pay. I don't know. And and he doesn't know how, how much I'm willing to pay. And the only difference between that situation and conflict is if if I don't buy the car, it's not like there's some huge cost that we pay. But like if we started bargaining and then some genie appeared and said, by the way, if you guys don't sell the car, you know, I'm going to execute one of your family members each. And then, you'd, <laughs> you know, then we would find a bargain and we might not find it in our interest to bluff so much. Right. Yeah. So it's not foregone conclusion that we're going to bluff. Yeah. This issue showed up also in the lead up to the Russian invasion of Ukraine, where I was just like completely agnostic about whether they were going to invade because I was like, well, they have every incentive to claim that they're going to, even if they're not. So literally, I just am not going to know until the tanks roll in or they or they don't. And it's like that dynamic where a government has to lie to the other party and in and in so doing also lie to their people makes it it's very difficult for democratic accountability Yeah, because it's not possible to say one thing to Germany and another thing to voters. So voters actually can't really tell on what basis you're negotiating and like either keep you or boot you out of office based on based on your behavior because you just have to lie to everyone. And there's layers of uncertainty. So if you're the president of this country, you don't actually you're not quite sure of the level of support for standing up to an invasion and you're not quite sure of your population's level of support for you committing an invasion. Hmm. So there's layers to this game. And so what that might mean is actually, you know, what is what does negotiation look like as well? Like one quote unquote negotiated outcome would be for Russia to have merely unilaterally sent in tanks and planes, maybe shocking and eyeing, maybe not, and then people just standing down, right? Hmm. Uh, it's kind of what happened in Crimea, right? Like that's basically exactly. And, and they, they, they says, well, you know, half the military, Ukrainian military in Crimea defected over to the Russians, half of them quietly retired, very few shots were shot. And, and, and some version of that could have played out. And I don't know that anybody was a lot of people in retrospect say, oh, that was foolish to even think that's true. And I, I, don't, think, I don't think people knew that beforehand. Yeah. 
the fourth underlying driver of violence you list, you call commitment problems. Yeah. And it's kind of the inability to commit not to abuse your power in, in future. Mm-hmm. Basically, if you have two actors and one is quickly becoming more powerful than the other, then the rising party would probably like to commit to not take too much of the pie, to, to not exploit the other party in future, because that would stop them from being attacked now. Yeah. But no matter, no, no matter what they say, the declining power knows that it's going to be in the rising power's interest to take advantage of them in future. And so, you know, the rising power could basically try to directly pay off the declining power now yeah. not to attack them, which, which does apparently often happen. But if the rise, if their rise in power is too steep, then they may just not be able to afford a sufficiently large payout to motivate the declining power not to engage in a preemptive strike in order to stop their rise. Yeah, yeah. Can you explain how this kind of commitment problem kind of might help explain why World War I occurred? Sure. You know, and I, I should say, like, it sounds like an esoteric concept and you're like, oh, does that really? And I think it's actually so fundamental to understanding so many things. It's actually, you know, the, the political economists also use these commitment problems to understand like a lot of issues of domestic politics and and dictatorships and low economic growth. So it's it's really yeah. it's worth thinking a lot about and learning because I think it ends up being really useful. You know, and and all of the world wars. There's some people say that every long war has a commitment problem at its root. Mm. I think that's a slight exaggeration, but it's true enough that it's or it's true often enough that it's it's worth pointing out. And so World War One is one of the classic examples. It's a great example of where a lot of historians are very quick, as I mentioned, to point out to the unchecked leaders in Europe, uh, to the misperceptions that they had about this idea, well, jolly little war home by Christmas, which is actually not what most leaders believed, but people like to tell that story. And, and they talk about nationalist and other ideologies or intangible incentives that led to war. So, so we, mm. it, it, we end up explaining world war one with unchecked leaders, misperceptions and intangible incentives. And then what a good number of other people said, like, well, yes, that's true, but why were we so vulnerable to that? And maybe the keyword, one of the keywords for this situation you just talked about and summarized so nicely, which is like this launching a preventative attack and a preventative war. One of the keywords you'll hear in the vernacular is a closing window of opportunity. As soon as you hear closing window of opportunity, it's kind of your signal for a potential commitment problem. Mm. And what was going on briefly in, in World War One was Germany's fear that Russia would soon rise to be so powerful that they would be at a complete strategic disadvantage. And there was an opportunity to prevent that from happening. And, and that window of opportunity was closing very soon. And it was probably going to close by 1917, 1918, according to some of the German generals who were arguing this. And the historians who who don't buy this fully are totally right to say, well, eh, there's ways to get out of that. It wasn't a total commitment problem. Hmm. And that's why I sort of buy both stories. I'm like, well, it was mostly a commitment problem. It was really hard for to find a deal that Russia wouldn't would be able to commit not to overpower Germany in future and, and assure Germany of some stability. But it was really hard. And, and that's the point at which our unchecked leaders and our misperceptions and our intangible incentives keep Europe from making a deal. And so we need both. It's not one or the other. Yeah. Yeah, I think some people have argued that commitment problems are also behind the Russian invasion of Ukraine. I suppose we're constantly courting trouble yeah. by, talking about a, by talking about a contemporary case. Um, but the argument there goes that basically, so, so Russia wants influence, power over Ukraine, mm-hmm. you know, whatever, whatever their goals within Ukraine are, they, they want to like have, have power over what, what's going on there. 
And they noticed that the Ukrainian military is getting way more competent, way more powerful, as evidently they have over the last eight years. And apparently also Ukraine was, you know, investing in more equipment, investing in longer range missiles, stuff that would make it easier to defend themselves. You know, these these drones that seem to have really packed a punch. Yeah. And so the Russians were like, well, okay, no, Ukraine's never. not actually going to be more powerful than us in five years, but they're going to be more than capable of defending themselves in five years. Yeah. So if we're ever going to engage in a kind of preemptive attack in order to prevent them from getting to that stage, then we have to attack now. And that can explain the kind of otherwise quite peculiar and arbitrary seeming timing. I think to an extent, absolutely. I think you definitely need more than that to explain this invasion because yeah. there was a way out. I mean, the way out was was for Ukraine to go to the way of Belarus and sort of submit to some degree. And and that didn't happen. So I think at minimum, you need an intangible incentive on the Ukraine side, like we said earlier, like like the American revolutionaries, this noble refusal to accept the, the cruel bargain on offer. And in those two things combined... And now you have pretty limited space to avoid an invasion, I think. So so that's the that's the strategic story. Yeah. I maybe should have said more at the outset. So I think you and I are probably are picturing this this diagram in in the book, which is kind of this pie chart, where it's like, this is the pie that we have to split between the various different parties. Mm-hmm. Uh, we've got kind of 100 different points of resources. And if violence is going to destroy, say, 20% of the pie, you know, because we're destroying all of the capital, we're destroying uh, all of this output, all of this stuff that we want, then so you've got this like 20, uh, 20% wedge there, which is kind of the negotiating space where both parties would prefer anything inside that wedge. Yeah. And each of these different five reasons just shrinks that space. It, it shrinks the size of, of that wedge because it gives people the reason to go to war in order to learn information about how strong the other side is, gives people intrinsic motivation to go to war. Yeah. It means that if the leaders have different interests, then that, that slice of the pie is narrower for them than it is for the population as a whole. But it's very rare for one factor to be able to, because violence is so destructive, it's very rare for one factor to be sufficient to shrink that pie to, to zero. Yeah. I mean, sometimes there are certainly instances, I think, and it's certainly conceivable, but, you know, these events have a lot of terrible roots and there's always something going on. So I, I agree, but but it's conceivably just one could do it. Yeah. So balance of power politics is one way that these commitment problem wars can potentially be avoided. Mm-hmm. Yeah, can you explain how that would work? So so there's one sense in which we think of a balance of power as potentially being stabilizing. So so this is this is a common approach to understanding long pieces for long stretches of European history. So, you know, for the hundred years before World War One, there was there was not there, there were there were of course wars in Europe, but it was a reasonably peaceful time between the Napoleonic Wars. And and what this suggested is there would there was a shifting pattern of alliances that that would essentially make sure that no one power could sort of have that incredible rise, create commitment problems and thus lead to a world war until, of course, that happened in World War I. Mm. But the reason that that's not always particularly stabilizing, I think, is that these shifting alliances and the unpredictability of these alliances can also create the potential for power shifts. And so the, the example I give in the book actually is this ancient Greek war, the Peloponnesian War, where um, has actually surprisingly not been analyzed very formally by political scientists through this lens to my surprise. I was hoping to find hmm. the ideas and, and the explanations served up on a platter, but surprisingly they're not. So my take, my, you know, because let's be clear, I am not an ancient Greek historian nor a political expert, but nonetheless, like my take is that the chief thing that led to this famous long war between Athens and Sparta was the fact that there was a previously neutral party that was sitting by the side, another Greek state, mm. that all of a sudden started to look like it might tip towards one side rather than the other. 
And so it created this sudden potential shift in power that would forever change the balance of power and led one party to sort of preventatively strike, in this case, Sparta, as, as this neutral party crept towards Athens. And so it goes to a larger lesson of game theory, which is that everything I've told you so far, this natural gravitational pull of peace makes a lot of sense when we're talking about two players trying to find some alternative, and we use that pie that you talked about. Um, not so true, not necessarily true when you have many players, and you have these shifting patterns of alliances and all sorts of possible factions and so that in that multiplayer setting some of these some of the predictability breaks down Mm. and it's a little bit harder to maintain maintain peace and and so and we do live in a multipolar world and so that it isn't quite so simple as peace peace all the time peace peace and very rarely war there there's more room for this to happen with all these actors yeah yeah, in that ancient Greek example, I guess the stylized description is that Athens was this rising power. Mm-hmm. Sparta was kind of declining relative to, to Athens. And so they were getting very skittish. They were getting very nervous about what Athens might do in future when they're more powerful. Mm-hmm. Interesting thing is because there was this third party, this kind of third balancing power, Athens could be in favor of that third party allying with Sparta mm-hmm. so that Sparta is less concerned about the rise of Athens because they'll still be balanced in the future and so won't feel the need to launch a preemptive attack on Athens. It's like the, this third party like makes a commitment kind of credible or, or is a way of trading off something now uh, so, so the Sparta doesn't, doesn't have to worry. Yeah, I mean, they didn't want... I mean, that they, this the neutral power had the second largest navy after Athens, so they didn't necessarily want... That would, be, that would not be their preferred solution. Mm. Their preferred solution was actually for this third power Corsaira to remain neutral neutral oh. and they tried to maintain that so as Corsaira tried to pull them into some of their disputes and things the Athenians resisted and they tried to be neutral observers and it was just a very difficult path to walk the fifth cause of violence you call misperceptions mm-hmm. and I guess I, I might have got or I think this audience might uh, might think of it as systematic poor judgment yeah. or like poor judgment that occurs in a systematic way basically kind of these are the thinking traps that people classically fall into in in conflict situations you know failing to put yourself in the mindset of someone else like not thinking up all of the possible underlying reasons that might explain an adversary's actions, kind of jumping to the worst conclusion rather than thinking about how their actions could be more innocently explained. Uh, I guess also, you know, overestimating our capabilities relative to other parties. Maybe the main thing that jumped out at me about this chapter is that you cite a lot of psychology research that I personally would be pretty wary of relying on because it's old enough. I mean, I suppose maybe this could apply to all psychology research even up to now, but at least the the older stuff, I really worry that there wasn't widespread enough bad research practices within the social sciences that you really can't trust that the results are legitimate. Yeah. How how did you try to handle that issue? So, you know, I... I think a couple of things happen. One, one is there's just, first of all, we have an endless list of behavioral biases that people have proposed in which there's both good and bad research for. So mostly I was searching for the ones that could actually affect strategic behavior. So I think I approached it theoretically in the sense of like, I think we have a really good theoretical sense of what kinds of biases are going to be worse for this particular situation. A lot of the behavioral science and psychology and economics that people are so familiar with right now mm. are actually about things that have to do with maximizing behavior, about about optimizing a choice, not in a strategic interaction with somebody else, but just either with my future self or just, or just a mistake I make now in the moment, ignoring the actions of anybody else. Mm. And a lot of those just aren't that important or just recede in importance in this particular kind of strategic interaction when the stakes are so high, because a lot of behavioral biases that we talk about go away when the stakes are super high. Not all of them, but Mm -hmm. many do. 
We have to focus on the limited number of ones that persist in big groups and bureaucracies that are working really hard to avoid really, really bad outcome and then can keep working three years into the whole mess. Like that's, that's what we need. So it limits the scope of possible things is maybe the first step. Then you have to dive into the evidence on which ones actually seem to be true. Mm. And I was guided a lot by the history and case studies in the sense of what, what came up when I was reading about Israel-Palestine and the Northern Irish and the Greeks and this and that were set of persistent biases. So I, in some sense, it narrowed down where to look. And then you have to go to the harder psychological evidence, which, as you note, can be spotty, whether it's in psychology or in economics or whatever. Um, yeah, you know, I try to be clear about when things are stronger than not. I think the preponderance of evidence in places, plus the tie-ins to the cases, plus the theory, they buttress one another. Mm. But, you know, no one is really, that's not no one. There have been lots of efforts, you know, I'm standing on the shoulders of people like Rose McDermott and Bob Jervis, who've been trying to categorize and really systematize our understanding of these misperceptions in international relations. And so we're getting closer, but there's, there's really a dearth of attention in research to these specific problems. So, mm. so I just think I just tried to be transparent about the, the strongest case. The strongest case is the, is the conceptual one and the evidence is suggestively saying this is true. Yeah, I think to, despite that question, I think it's very likely that all of these misperceptions play a role. Mm-hmm. I mean, what one reason is if a psychology experiment, well, firstly, if there's one study, that's a really bad side. If there's a yeah. whole bunch of studies, that's a, that's a whole lot better. But even then, you know, a whole literature can, can be confused. Yeah. But a, a big thing is like all of these make a ton of sense to me. None of these are counterintuitive. All of these are things we could see in our own minds, I think. Yeah. And that just like that prior probability that the fact that it makes so much sense feels right, like isn't surprising. I think, yeah, it makes it makes it a lot more believable. Yeah, yeah. One interesting one, you, an example that you gave for how we fail to put ourselves in the mindset of others is that we can even fail to put ourselves in the mindset of ourselves mm-hmm. at, at other times. There's an example where you know people who are hungry, I think, buy buy more food at the supermarket. Exactly. People who are cold buy warmer clothes <laughs> rather than anticipating how how cold they're going to be right. in future. I was thinking about and this isn't that important, but I was thinking about that and I was thinking actually I think this could be rational because it's so easy to tell what your preferences are now. You can just you know, inspect them. It immediately feeds back without any energy. Yeah. Actually analyzing it and trying to figure out how you would felt in the past or how you will feel in the future is more effort demanding. Yeah. And so if a decision's not very important, like how much food to buy at the supermarket, then maybe it just actually just isn't worth the effort. Um, yeah, I mean... That, that wouldn't really explain the war case, but... Well, it could, it could, probably doesn't for, but might for a very specific reason. I mean, you're saying there's like a transaction cost to like thinking through something. Exactly. And a lot of behavioral biases are about transaction costs and our brains working efficiently to avoid them, especially for lots of everyday decisions, which makes total sense. And the reason I don't, in some sense, I could have a six bucket of explanations called transaction costs that it's actually expensive and difficult to negotiate mm. and to think about your war, your opponent's war interests and things. And and those transaction costs are, are a cause of war. And, and technically that's true. But as like a matter of fact, you know, because war is so costly, the transaction costs mostly pale. So, yeah. so it's, it's, it's more of like a conceptually true thing that I just think doesn't, isn't worth yeah. elevating to the level of a six cause, but conceptually it is a six cause and it's the source of a lot of the behavioral biases that I think don't matter in the case of war. 
Yeah, if a country ended up in a war with another country and you asked them why and they said, oh, we couldn't afford the diplomat salary. Right. <laughs> it, would, it would strain credulity. Yeah, I mean, there's so, you know, to some, there are, there are limits on our spy budgets and our diplomatic budgets. And, and you might say we invest too little in some of these things. Hmm. But yeah, I think, I think we'd, we put a lot of effort into discerning what's going on. Yeah. I think of the misperceptions that you listed, the one that I'm most nervous about is kind of overestimating your capabilities relative to others. Yeah. Because from what I've read, so I think, yeah, people have this strong perception that people just always overestimate themselves. They, they think they're better drivers than everyone else. They think they're better at math than everyone else. They think they're more beautiful than everyone else. Mm-hmm. But I think if you look more closely, you see that there's quite a lot of situations in which people kind of underplace their ability relative to others. Yeah. I think some of those, from what I've read, is kind of where, where a task is difficult, yeah. like just difficult in absolute terms where they've never done it before, yep. where measurement of success is objective rather than subjective, and where it's not central to their identity. A case that we talked about with a previous guest, Spencer Greenberg, is marathons, where people actually mm-hmm. underplace themselves right. because for most people, <laughs> including me, running, being able to run a marathon isn't key to our identity. I've never done it before. It's pretty clear whether I did it or didn't. And it's also something that I just think of as difficult. Arguably, fighting in a war has some of these characteristics, and you could imagine a leader underestimating their ability to, to fight on the field because they don't have experience. It's clear whether you lose. Yeah. Yeah. What, what do you think? So I think this is just something we don't know the answer to. And it's just hugely important. So like speculatively, like I think that there's might be a lot of interpersonal variation. So I don't think all CEOs are overconfident. I don't think all mutual fund managers are overconfident, but there might be selection into CEOs and selection in mutual fund managers that draws overconfident types. And then if you happen to get one, there might get you into trouble. Right. Mm. And they clearly exist. So, yep. but it's not every CEO. So something's going on and it's not in your interest to hire as a firm or to hire consistently overconfident people. So why it exists is a bit of a puzzle. And then I think we have to understand why it persists even in like a somewhat checked and balanced organization, like a shareholder had held publicly traded corporation. And and it does. And so, so it's, it's, it's there's a bureaucratic answer rather than maybe like a, a purely psychological answer. And I, I struggled to find much on that. I looked very, I looked exhaustively. I'm sure there's things I missed, but I, I don't think we really have a good answer to why our mutual fund managers are just so ridiculously overconfident in, in their performance. Yeah, I think it could be the case that, you know, on average, as, as in these studies of kind of overplacement and underplacement, it could be that, you know, a typical person isn't overconfident in general. There's just some things where they're overconfident and some things where they're underconfident. But it wouldn't shock me if politicians by nature tend to be overconfident, because just to begin with, most people who run for office, most people who try to pursue a career in politics fail. So maybe it selects the people who are willing to go for long shots or people who are willing to accept. Oh, them. I think we know there's selection, but then there's counter incentives against those selection. Oh, yeah. Now, in politics, it might be hard to discern and get those people out of power. But if you run some huge trading, if you run a trading firm, you should be aware of the selection problem that I don't just want a bunch of overconfident young yahoos because that's going to lose money. And over time, the bigger and better firms should emerge that don't have that problem. So there's something there's some inefficient persistence of overconfidence in something as high stakes as our financial markets and our largest corporations. Mm. So if it persists there where there's like information and explicit measurement and accountability and instantaneous results it has to persist in political situations yeah and wouldn't it be nice if we understood more about that yeah so 
some of these misperceptions you might expect would be very prominent for individuals, but they would be tempered in groups because you, you think, okay, so an individual might fail to put themselves in another country's shoes. Yeah. But, you know, surely we have a diplomatic core. This is kind of their whole job is to think about it from the other side's perspective. Uh, and they would help to to correct this this mistake. But I think interpersonal interactions can in some cases like make this even worse yeah. or at least it doesn't fix it as much as you might think because kind of interactions between people in within a society can increase the pressure to indulge in misperceptions because you don't want to say okay a classic one that really stands out to me is imagine that joe biden got up and gave a speech where he was like well you might be very mad with putin but you got to understand like the fourth cause of war is commitment problems and <laughs> and, the, and ukraine was improving right. its uh, improving its military and so there was a closing window of opportunity in which putin <laughs> could act boo exactly. <laughs> Uh, people are going. People, people are going to hate this kind of explanation of right. this behavior, and so so that that's crazy example. But you could get this within a bureaucracy, even where kind of people don't really want to go to the meeting and be like, "I'm going to be, I'm the person who re- deeply understands Putin's mind and can get myself inside that," because you look like a like a jerk. Hundred percent. But the tricky, I mean, a great a great analysis of the, the late Bob Jervis and his analysis of intelligence failures in the U.S. and in the invasion of Iraq is is like a a great study and some particular bureaucratic failures to process information and, and draw the right conclusion and insulation. The The thing is, is most of the time, I don't think that happens so seriously that this terrible action, which is war happens. And mm. so, so it, it only happens some of the time, or maybe it happens all the time, but not to a degree that it's decisive. But then sometimes our decision-making gets better through bureaucratic decision. Like through, mm-hmm. everyone thinks bureaucratic sounds like a bad word, but bureaucratic means like systematized, rule-based, uh, you know. So, and, and a lot of our decisions are better when we make them in groups. And so mm-hmm. there's a lot of difference of opinion. Uh, I get some criticisms from colleagues saying, this is nonsense. You know, this group decision-making, a lot of this goes away. And then other people saying, this is nonsense. The fact that you're even acknowledging that group decision-making could ever get better and individual decision making ignores all this other and and you know the fact is is like this is one of those additional instances i've pointed at one or two in the previously where i think we don't know a lot it has a lot in common with us not knowing about why mutual fund managers are overconfident we we've had all this investment all this behavioral science that is so intuitive now to so many people is super individualistic Mm. and almost none of us probably can quote we can all quote 100 studies right even the average pull person off the street, probably they could tell you about one, mm. but nobody can tell you about something that sort of about how this breaks down organizations and some intuition about it. And I thought, oh, it must be out there. And some of it is. But that's our that's our big failing as a social science right now. Yeah. Okay, we've come to the end of kind of laying out these five different drivers of, of violence in order. Just to just to recap for people, uh, they were unchecked interests, intangible incentives, uncertainty, commitment problems, and then misperceptions. What's the best argument for a cause of violence that doesn't fit into the above five buckets? I guess that was my question. You've maybe already answered that with the transaction cost thing, but is is, is there is there another a, a seventh potential bucket? Well, I think I'm, I also mentioned this multiplayer problem. And I, I talked about it as maybe a kind of commitment problem mm-hmm. because it creates these shifting and hard to predict alliances. It can also create, you know, if you think about a big problem, if you're trying to bargain with an enemy is the fragmentation of your group and, and splinter factions going off and doing something like George Washington was a splinter faction. The British had to worry about Yasser Arafat spent a lot of his time worrying about splinter factions, mm. things of this nature. So, is that a separate bucket or not? I, again, I think this is somewhere I don't 
I don't I don't think we have the equipment to understand for sure. And, and that's that's kind of in both of these cases, I think we push against the frontier of what we know. Yeah. So it could just be that it fits into the buckets or it could be its own bucket. And I haven't decided yet. Yeah, that makes sense. What's the thing that you've said so far that would be most controversial among political scientists or, or economists? Well, you know, I mean, the way I've tried to, to skirt controversy is not by trying mm. to say this is the way the Iraq war started and not this way. I just am trying to, like, classify people's explanations. Mm. So it's it's a way of actually trying to keep everybody happy, which is uh, maybe that's my inner Canadianness. <laughs> um, I'm trying to think the... So so partly I just assiduously like skirt all that. And then maybe I haven't heard it yet, but I because the book hasn't come out. So you should probably ask me a couple of weeks. <laughs> ask you know, it comes out April nineteenth, twenty first in the UK. Two weeks after that I will know the answer to the question. Yeah, I expect you'll get some people who are maybe mad about the case studies because your description might seem like it's justifying really bad behavior. Yeah, the dispassionateness bothers a lot of people, not the political scientists. The political scientists are are empathetic to that sort of strategic empathy that we're trying to understand these people. At the same time, you know, I, I avoided the contemporary conflicts in the book for a couple. I mean, one is I just didn't want it to be dated the day it came out because things change. Mm. I want there to, I wanted to sort of this to be more timeless. But more importantly, I didn't want people to get angry about the cases so much because I wanted them to I wanted to sort of provide that dispassionate tool set toolkit mm. and still talking about, you know, for for people in the UK, Northern Ireland is still very fresh. For people in the U.S. and the U.K., you know, the, the, the wars in, in, in Iraq is still very fresh. Mm. So I'm, I'm not totally skirting things, but people are finding it very hard to think and, and think analytically about the Russian invasion of Ukraine right now. And, and that's actually a problem for peace. Yeah. So one dynamic that I wasn't sure where it fit to these, into these five categories is that people argue that if it's easier to win a war if you start it first, yeah. and that's true of both parties then that's a reason to attack someone else before they attack you. And yep. it's a reason for them to attack you really quickly. So you want to get in even sooner. So you get this kind of race to attack. Yeah, where does that fit? That's another classic kind of commitment problem. Mm. Because you would like to, both of you would like to avoid this costly outcome, which is war. And because you have to make this simultaneous, instantaneous choice, and there's no third party to restrain you, you, you can make it. You know, there's lots of varieties of the commitment problem, actually. I just happen to emphasize the one that I think is most intuitive to people, which is the preventative war and not be. It was a pretty comprehensive book already without being super comprehensive. But so I think you've picked up on on something that I slunk past in the service of, of not trying Brevity. people's patience. Yeah. So right, very quickly, you've brought us to the 201 class again. <laughs> yeah, that's, that's, that's what subscribers to the show want. Perfect. Um, Another one, maybe the answer is just going to be the same, but another kind of game theory model that I've heard about that people talk about, especially in the context of nuclear war, is this kind of beautiful little setup, I think created by, by Thomas Schelling, who wrote the, this famous game theory book, The Theory of Conflict. Yeah, the setup is you're standing at the edge of a cliff chained by the ankle to someone else. You'll be released and one of you will get a large prize as soon as the other gives in. How do you persuade the other guy to give in when the only method at your disposal 
threatening to push the other party off the cliff would doom both of you because you're, you're tied together? The answer is you start dancing closer and closer to the edge of the cliff. That way you don't have to convince them that you would do something totally irrational, like plunge both of you off the edge of the cliff. You just have to convince them that you are prepared to take a higher risk than they are of accidentally falling off the cliff. If, if you can convince them that you're more risk-taking than them, then you can win. Where does that fit? So... It kind of depends how you set it up. I think the way it's set up there is it's mostly a story about uncertainty. Like fundamentally, the problem is I don't know whether you're crazy or how resolved you are. Mm. So it goes back to that whole discussion we had about it's a bluff, but it might not be a bluff. Yeah. And and so you're creeping closer to the edge as a way of signaling mm. your and but here you're trying to signaling your willingness to just burn the whole place down if you don't get what you want. And and the reason why creeping too close to the edge is a signal is because only, you know, it, it's, it's a good signal only if like nobody but the craziest person as you slowly get there would actually do that. So now you're credibly signaling. Now, the, the fact is, is actually standing like far from the edge or close to the edge. It's actually it's I don't think it's a perfect, you know, example, because that's actually not a very credible signal at all, because I'm not actually going mm, over the edge. It's not that dangerous. So that's that's one way to think about it is it's just uncertainty and bluffing and, mm. and it can result in somebody potentially going off the cliff and it can be strategic. And and I think what subsequent game theorists did was refine that logic. Like mm. Schelling sort of created all of these puzzles for people to work out, which then a lot of people just filled in the blanks. The other way it could work, though, is is, again, related to something we mentioned I think earlier, which is to say that, like, let's say we get to elect each group gets to elect who gets chained. Mm. You may have an incentive to elect the crazy person to be chained up, <laughs> right? So that because you want to, because because that'll actually improve your bargaining position. But it's a it's a difficult calculated decision, and so you might play a mixed strategy in whether or not you elect a crazy person. Yeah, all of these strategic cases they suggest that there is kind of some minimal risk of war that we can get to that we can't get below because it's just not a stable competitive situation because one party then has a reason to increase the risk of war. So, I, I mean, that is like, that's like the central contribution of game theory to the study. It's to say, well, actually, the fact that we have shifting power, mm -hmm. the fact that we live in an uncertain world, and the fact that there are unchecked leaders, which game theorists would call agency problems, means that there can be lots of rational war. Mm. And that's a huge contribution. I think the what the problem is for a long time that th that discipline has totally ignored the irrational war mm. and and not tried to do this sort of mind meld that I've tried to do in the book and try to make some of these things work in our models and explore the implications. So we we don't have the same, you know, the thing is, you never really know. And I'm not a game theorist, but I do know enough that you never really know how the model and the prediction is going to work out until you work it out. And there's a lot of counterintuitive insights that might seem obvious if I explain it now, but but weren't obvious beforehand. And that's what I think is there's a lot of things I think we think about irrational behavior and the the story you've just told that if you actually work it out, you might not get the conclusion you you expect. And maybe the sad thing is, is there's maybe only a handful of people who actually work on conflict-related game theory these days. Huh. It's just um, out of fashion? It's just, I don't know. It's also like a, it's not that big a field. And it's a, it's mm. also not like a, it's a, it's a hard to acquire skill. Mm. Maybe it's out of fashion. It's, it hasn't been favored by the technology of research, right? Like there's so many empirical researchers mm. and a lot of the empirical research has boomed because 
well, let's think it. When I went to college, we didn't have computers. There was no software to run statistical analysis. And if there was, our computer wasn't fast enough to do it, and nobody created the data. Mm. And so we've had an empirical revolution that's sort of because of the sort of shifting technology of research. And that's so it's not so much made it unfashionable, it's just people chasing the frontier are not doing as much theory. Yeah. I guess now you can run too many regressions. We've got the opposite True, problem. exactly. You I can. guess we had to pause in 1992 or something. Right. Um, the model that you present in, in the book is kind of this dividing pie thing. And for simplicity in the book, you kind of conceptualize things in terms of, you know, different groups have different levels of power and that changes their probability of winning the war and getting the, yeah. the whole pie, or at least the whole pie that's remaining after the, the destruction of the war, which is a nice simplification. But it seems like, you know, more often in conflict, a small group would almost certainly lose a war because yep. <laughs> they're just like so much, so much weaker. And instead of what's going on is that they have some ability to harm a much more powerful party, even if they can't like actually win a, win a pitch battle. Does thinking about dividing up the pie more in proportion to how much you can harm someone else rather than your chance of winning an outright war kind of change anything important about the conclusions that, that spit out? You know, generally, no. I think I think that's why I could make this simplification is mm. most of the things we get are intact. I think I think what you end up getting is I think you then start to understand things like terrorism better. Mm. Terrorism is the weapon of the weakest. Mm. It's the way that you exercise bargaining power versus an incredibly strong foe. Not because you think the terrorists are going to manage to take over the country, which very seldom happens, but they they leverage violence against civilians, but the fear of violence to obtain concessions yeah, or obtain some other aim. And so, so I think it helps you understand a greater variety of violence, but the, a lot of the same, the same principles, the idea that peace is optimal and that it only, that, and a lot of the five sources of breakdown still apply. So I want to talk a, a little bit about this issue that I'm kind of confused about. I've been reading this book, Only the Dead by Bear Braumoller, mm-hmm. where he does a whole bunch of statistical analysis to try to figure out whether wars are becoming less common, like the initiation of wars is becoming less common, mm-hmm. or their escalation is becoming less frequent. He has this really interesting quote that, that stood out at me when I was um, reading it this week, which is, second, the fact that both intensity and severity are not just thick-tailed, but also fit a power law distribution well, is especially ominous. That fact means that the outcomes of wars are consistent with a process in which the only difference between a small war and a very large one is random chance. Mm-hmm. Even people who can manage to wrap their heads around the incredible escalatory potential of war often find this point hard to believe. Don't human beings have control over the outcomes of wars? Can't we just put a stop to them if they're getting too bloody? There's a short answer to this objection and a longer, more detailed one. The short answer is that, yes, we certainly can put a stop to a war that we're fighting if we're willing to lose. But if we were willing to lose, we probably wouldn't be fighting the war in the first place, would we? So something I still don't know, quite know how to model, model in my head is the choice that both parties have in some sort of auction kind of scenario where they're, they're both fighting one another over something that they care about and they have a choice in each period to either like fold or raise. Mm-hmm. Like they can, they can fight harder or, or not and, and kind of they, they both end up paying the price of the war. So it's, it's sort of a double pay thing where it's like they both either have to pay with effort or, mm-hmm. or with the violence that's, that's inflicted on them. How, how can one think about that more structurally, the choice to escalate or not? Let's see. So, I mean, for, I like that book a lot. I read a long time ago. I would say the first caution I would just say is that there is a difference between statistical noise and real randomness, mm. which is to say that, like, the things that aren't in our model that we can't observe might be what's driving the ones that escalate from the ones that don't. Mm. And, and and we actually don't have that many wars to study. Yeah. And, and so our statistical power to, like, discern what's noise or not 
really de- deteriorates. And we actually don't, we, we can't even measure, like most of the things I just talked about, like, is there a commitment problem? Is there an intangible incentive? Is there some ideological issue at stake? And is is hard to observe. How do you measure that in the data? Mm. And so we don't, we, those don't go into the models. And so, so we end up just, we see a lot of escalation. We see a lot of non-escalation. Mm. And then there's a whole bunch of conflicts we never observed. They're not in the data set because they weren't conflicts. Mm. So, so it's just hard to do. And so then I think we have to think a little bit more and, and we can run regressions and do careful studies about what escalates. Once again, I think the most important things we can't measure. So that's why in spite of being this sort of in my day job, this sort of status, applied statistician in some ways, when it comes to understanding why we fight or why we escalate, I, I end up going back to the cases and the theory mm. as a lot for, for the guidance. And then thinking about how we'd build better evidence on that kind of thing. So, so for example, like, what does it mean to refuse to lose? And I think one interpretation of that is there's circumstances. So one is to say losing entirely just isn't in our bargaining space. Hmm. That we, we actually just want to find something. Getting zero isn't, isn't an option because we can always do better by fighting than zero. So there's a, there's a rational story there. And then we have to say, well, why didn't we get the something in our bargaining range. But there's another interpretation that would say sometimes there's a, something in that bargain that we should accept and we refuse to, hmm. like Ukrainians or American revolutionaries compromising on their liberty. And that's hard to predict, right? Why did Ukrainians resist and the Belarusians did not? Why have there been color revolutions in some Eastern European countries and there have not been color revolu- there hasn't been a major color revolution in Russia? Why didn't the 2018 protests escalate? Why did repression against protesters in one place work and media control in one place work? And why did it unravel in the other? So so that's just hard to answer. We have some answers, I think. But but I mean that to me is like what's going on is and, and so so there's a certain sort of unpredictability to it that is not because it's just a power law or something mechanistic, but because we don't observe we, we it's just hard to predict. Yeah. So a kind of model that I had in mind is an extension of the sort of uncertainty poker thing that we were mm-hmm. talking about. So as we noted, like a slightly perverse implication of the uncertainty, needing to bluff, needing to seem tough, needing to signal that you have resolve thing, is that a weaker party can choose to escalate a war or start a war or, or like or accept that a war is going, going to happen even when they suspect that they're weaker and that they're going to like lose in a direct sense mm-hmm. because they have to seem fierce. They have yep. to, they, they want to seem like they're not bluffing, like they're, they're willing to go to war if, if it comes to it. Right. And, and the optimal strategy involves randomization here. So, so the party might say, well, we've drawn a random number, we've decided to escalate in this case in order to signal our, our fierceness. And the other party could basically do the same thing. And you could just get extremely unlucky where all sides to decide to escalate again and again yep. and, and like proceed to a, to a really full-scale war that they never really wanted in the, in the first place just because they feel like it's necessary in order to like signal the kind of tough guys that they are. Does that make sense? Yeah, I think it does make sense. I think, I think it's hard to get to a long war from that. I think the escalation, 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 and both being willing to do that is improbable enough that, mm. but except in a world where it goes back to this multiplayer games where everyone's I, watching, everyone's watching. And so, you know, if I'm Saddam Hussein facing the U.S., 
as I point out in the book, like I, th- I was really struck by, and now I don't remember which historian or pointed this out, was that in Saddam's mind, the U.S. wasn't even enemy number one or enemy number two, wasn't even enemy number three. Mm. Saddam Hussein was chiefly worried about Iran. He was working about he was worried about the Shiites. Uh, he was worried about Israel, and and they were all watching what Saddam would do. And likewise, when when the United States was trying to convince the Taliban government of Afghanistan that we'll invade if you don't hand over bin Laden, both the Taliban were thinking about their reputation, but more importantly, I think the United States was thinking about every other potential enemy conventional or terrorist that would be watching to see what they do. And so I don't think we can understand the America, America's 20 year war. And I don't think we can understand Saddam Hussein's brinksmanship or the Bush decision to invade Iraq without thinking about how they were trying to, in an uncertain world, signal resolve to a wider audience in order to move every other bargaining game a little bit in their favor. Yeah. Yeah, that's the thing that can make a lot of sense, I suppose, of how you'd be willing to bear such huge costs. Because, like, why would you go into a total war just to show that you're fearless? Like, you're losing everything that you were trying to protect. Yeah. Um, so you need to have some, like, broader considerations that are beyond the scope of that war in order to make sense of the of the costs. I think, I think so. maybe let, let's come back to that. Because I want to I talk a bit about the, the war in Ukraine and, like, what we've gotten right mm-hmm. and wrong and maybe, like, how these, how these models get applied to that beyond what we've already already talked about. And, and I think this, this might be a good, a good case to, to bring up later. So basically, I've got to be following what both of us have been saying about the, the war in Ukraine. And kind of over time, I've started to worry that at least I've gotten some stuff wrong or at least my recommendations in some areas have been, uh, would have been harmful if they'd been followed. And I think kind of you have a similar way of analyzing these issues. <laughs> so maybe you've done the same. I guess, so we predicted, well, I guess you thought that, that Russia probably wouldn't invade Ukraine. Mm-hmm. I guess, basically, <laughs> you just thought that on priors, uh, it probably wouldn't invade because it was a bad idea. Yeah. Is there anything more like systematic that we can learn from that? Or is it, is it potentially the case that you just got, you just got unlucky? To be determined. I mean, we don't, we don't really know what's going on. Like, it, and, and we'll, you know, a good example is I have a Russian colleague who's eminent game theorist and, and was once the head of one of those eminent universities in Moscow, he's now here, who has a completely different view than mine. He is obviously has more information, right? Uh, mm. But he he's, despite being a strategic thinker and someone who studies strategic thinkers, he thinks this is very irrational. And that this is, it's all misperceptions and intangible incentives in an insular, degenerated inner circle mm. around Putin. I don't know if that's right. I'm not totally persuaded by him. I certainly think it's a role. I, I think he, I, I can't quite convince myself he's fully right. Not everyone agrees with him, even who are other experts. But it's a good example. Of, it's a totally plausible state of the world. Hmm. So what we learn from this is going to depend on what was actually going on. Because you, I can I can articulate, and I have here, like the strategic logic of the invasion. Hmm. Especially Russia's strategic logic to invade makes even more sense in like a cold, calculated brutal way but in a real politic you know kind of sense it makes sense given if if the ukrainians are these noble nobly intransigent defenders of liberty then the compromise then you're just going to have to seize it is is the rationale just like that was maybe the quote-unquote correct decision for for the uk in, in the american revolution so but but if if i'm wrong and my colleague is right hmm. that they're just not thinking strategically at all that means that any solution that follows my advice would be a terrible one. Um, <laughs> yeah. Likewise, any if he's wrong, any solution that follows his advice would be a terrible one. Mm. 
it's a little bit like going back to our doctor analogy. Yeah. Like you have to have the, the treatment suits the disease and we don't have a clearing diagnosis right now because there's so many mysteries. Yeah. So I suppose, yeah, you might disagree about which of the five drivers is doing most of the work. And there's kind of a question of like how personal is it versus mm-hmm. um, how strategic is it? One one thing I would say is never believe anyone who's super confident. Yeah. Because that to me is what's misleading. That's to me what's misleading about so many people is an unwillingness to admit uncertainty over which of the five is operative when they're all plausible is is suspicious. Yeah. So I suppose part of the reason to think that war was unlikely was that it would be bad for Russia. And it seems like probably ex post it is going to turn out to be to be bad for Russia. And yet they did it anyway. Mm-hmm. Something that I've read, I, I guess I need to maybe look into this, but people who've kind of looked into the cases of countries that initiated wars of choice, yeah. like over the last hundred years, like how often does it work out positively for them in like people's general assessment? And it seems like it's very rare that it works out in the interest of the country as a whole. Like things usually go worse than they expect. The the costs tend to be higher. If that's the case, then like maybe this is slightly the wrong framework because we're just going to get what's happening surprisingly often when it's not in the interest even of the party that's choosing to do it. I think the right the right way to ask that question would actually be to say how many times did it make sense to credibly threaten violence mm. and then potentially be you know, roll the dice and decide to use it. Right. So, so the credible use of violence is extremely important, not just in achieving your interest, but in maintaining peace as well. Mm. So I think that would be the fair comparison. Like if we think that violence is by definition, the inefficient thing to do, then we're kind of stacking the deck. Of course, it was always the wrong thing to do. Typically, it typically is not going to work out in your interest because we know the negotiated solution, but so we have to have the fair comparison. For example, like the one one example I like to point out, everybody knows about the U.S. invasion of Afghanistan. Most people don't know about the U.S. invasion of Haiti. Mm. And that's because they won before they even landed the planes. Mm. All it was was the credible threat of actually the invasion and actually having the planes in the air with the troops. Mm. And a coup leader, non-democratic coup leader said, okay, okay, okay. Um, and more often than not, it doesn't even come to like, putting the troops on the planes and having them over the Gulf of Mexico, right? Mm. So so those instruments of power are in many countries. And so that's why the U.S. arms. That's why the U.S. and any imperial power or any power gets its way in the world because it, it can credibly threaten violence. Yeah, I suppose going to war in a case where it's not in your interests might be an even stronger signal because it shows you you're crazy enough to do it, even if it's like cost, too costly to you in a specific case. That is one explanation for the 20 years that the U.S. spent in Afghanistan. Right. That it's a costly signal exercise. And from one perspective, it's not clear. It was costly to the Afghans. Mm. It's not clear how costly it was to the United States. It was, you could say, it cost about 0.5% of GDP. And in bad years, dozens of deaths. And other years, ten fewer, many, many fewer. Mm. And that was the price paid for no terror attacks on U.S. soil and intimidating potential future Al-Qaeda. Yeah. Ex-ante, is that a choice that any president would willingly pay uh, or a price that they would willingly pay? Maybe. Maybe, yeah. Maybe. So kind of the obvious thing that I think both of us got wrong, along with a lot of other people, I guess, to be fair, is that 
At least my, my thought was Ukraine should probably be willing to give up more than it seemed like it was willing to give up yeah. in order to prevent the war from happening. Because I assumed, as I think many people did, that their military position was very weak, yeah. that uh, Russia would... like. I, I, so my prediction was that Russia would have a hell of a time trying to occupy Ukraine. Yeah. But I thought, well, that'd be at least able to sweep in to begin with and try to try to ask the government. But basically, it seems like the, the things that people predicted would happen with the occupation where they'd struggle to do it start kicked in on day two. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. like, they're just attacked on all sides. And <laughs> and it's kind of this like failed occupation even just of the of the border areas. Now, one way of making sense of this is just that it was extremely uncertain. Like it, this is just a case of uncertainty yeah. on this list. We, along with Russia, along with all lots of other parties, thought, well, uh, Ukraine was weaker than it was. But maybe maybe the Ukrainians got lucky or maybe maybe Zelensky had kind of private information that he couldn't credibly communicate just about just how resolved they were and like how strong their, yeah. their military was. But in a sense, we just got un- unlucky. What's the probability that we got like something else more more structurally wrong than that, that we misunderstood the situation? Yeah, I mean, what I've heard, not so reliably, but what I've heard from some people who are studying this more intently than I am is is that, for example, U.S. intelligence, what you just sort of said, your expectation about how strong Russia was relative to Ukraine was mm. was not inconsistent with U.S. US intelligence reports. Mm. And so maybe those were systematically wrong and structurally wrong. Mm. And maybe we'll find out. I mean, I'm not sure that'll ever get resolved. No one's ever going to open up the Ukrainian Russian archives to the extent that, say, the CAA let let scholars like Bob Jervis peer in. Hmm. So I think probably it's mostly uncertainty. Like what's structurally wrong? I think that, I think I say Americans have not invested a great deal in understanding the Ukraine. I don't know that, I'm, I'm guessing we don't have huge diplomatic missions there didn't before the war and we're certainly training, we're training their military, but I, I'm not sure how much of the foreign policy apparatus was that experienced. So maybe it was more uncertain than it could have been if, if if people were were taking this threat more seriously, mm. it's also possible. I think I think the idea that in order to preserve power and by becoming a more personalized and repressive leader, systematically over the last ten years, Putin has manufactured an inner circle that is insular, mm. that is full of second rate people. You know, a defense minister with zero military experience mm. that. He has, in order to preserve his power, built a, a rickety structure that fed him bad information. That's a really plausible story. Yeah, it's a hundred percent true to some extent. Whether or not that's it, and it was no uncertainty. I think that's. A, I think it's a combination. Yeah. So yeah, following the conversation about this, I guess there's a bunch of folks who are f- somewhat jubilant now. I would say you know pe- people who wanted to engage in appeasement of Russia, people who wanted to reach some kind of negotiated settlement ahead of time. Kind of like me, we had it wrong, and we shouldn't have done that because Russia was asking far too much relative to their to military strength. And I think there's like a lot to be said for that. On the other hand, I, I worry that people could now, because we've been kind of like happily surprised by how the war has gone from a military sense, mm-hmm. we're like not paying attention to the fact that a bunch of cities have basically just been flattened, that tens yeah. of thousands of civilians are dead, that the economy of Ukraine is doing much worse than it would have otherwise. Yeah. And that even now, like even knowing that the military has overperformed, the war has been so costly, and not just for Ukraine, but, you know, but for, the, for the world, for like the global system, that even a bad agreement even after all of this, even after you've done unusually well, could still have been better than than the outcome that is now going to be on the table. Yeah. And, and quite honestly, like, I mean, let's think about how this might resolve. It's easy to imagine a world where in six months, Russia de facto controls and has incorporated much of eastern Ukraine and Crimea into itself. Maybe Ukraine doesn't acknowledge that officially. Maybe the West doesn't acknowledge that in law. Mm. It seems implausible. They might. 
but let's say they don't, but they kind of recognize that that's what it is. And Ukraine, in order to attain a peace agreement, declares neutrality, does not militarize, does not acquire these long-range missiles, for example. Everyone renounces Ukraine's eligibility for NATO, hmm. uh, et cetera, et cetera. All, let's say all of those things happen. You're like, well, that kind of was one of the deals on offer beforehand. Now, you can say, well, Putin, that was like one of the less attractive options for Putin. And given that he thought he would do better, he might not have accepted that. Hmm. Maybe. But yeah, I'm not sure the final, the way things shake out, because Ukraine is relatively weak, no matter how well they've been doing. I'm not sure that the final outcome is going to look that different from what was on the table in the beginning. Yeah. So let's come back to the reputation and escalation thing. So I think this is going to be, some some listeners will be shouting into their <laughs> podcasting app about this. Basically, a key reason why it would have been bad for the Ukraine to make such a deal where it gave up part of its territory to Russia in order to see off a war is that this is the way in which a powerful country like Russia can just bully countries one by one mm-hmm. and take advantage of everyone around them. You can imagine, they, so now they don't have to fight a war in Ukraine. They, they've stolen a bunch of its territory. Now kind of the lines are renegotiated. But now they can just go and do that again to someone else, right? Yeah. They can go and, go and bully them. And so the argument goes that kind of Ukraine, and indeed like all of the countries that face a threat from Russia, including the West as a whole, need to draw a line in the sand. Mm-hmm. And even though like what Russia might be asking for wouldn't be worth a total war, we have to be willing to go to, to, to war to an extreme to suffer enormous costs in order to prevent ourselves from being picked off one by one. And ultimately, in the, in the long run, paying a, paying a huge price. So, so first of all, I think Russia's divide and conquer strategy with its neighbors has been working, mm. and and they have not had any mechanism by which they can band together to collectively resist this. Mm. Um, that's also, you know, Tim Fry has a is a Russia expert at at Columbia University has a fabulous book published last year, where he also talks about that's how Putin, that's how many dictators, including Putin, grab power and personalize power, is there's lots of oligarchs, there's lots of military generals, there's lots of powerful governors, there's lots, but they were never banded together to collectively resist him. And so he was able to sort of divide and conquer. Hmm. And so that's a strategy that works well for him. And now there is an alliance, the NATO alliance, hmm. plus Ukraine, that is drawing a line. Sort of, right? You know, the NATO isn't really drawing that firm line. They're supporting Ukraine. They're not actually allies. They're not militarily getting involved. So you can understand maybe the West's willingness to fuel this war on those terms. And that's that's a kind of unchecked leaders or unchecked interests argument, mm. right? That says, listen, Ukrainians are paying the costs, not us. It's really easy to draw a line in the sand if it's not our sand. It's the story behind every proxy war. So we're fighting a proxy war yeah. in Ukraine. It's a nobler proxy war than most proxy wars, but every proxy war is in some ways the product of unchecked interests Mm. because there's some superpower or some neighboring power that's fueling one side of the conflict, even when it makes sense to deal from the perspective of those two very local warring parties. Yeah. Yeah. So one narrative is we have to arm the Ukrainians in order to protect Ukraine. A different narrative would be we have to fight an incredibly destructive proxy war in Ukraine that is bad for Ukrainians in order to protect Taiwan. Yeah. <laughs> and these are like very different stories yeah. for like what is going on. I mean, yeah, both of these are decisions to, these aren't decisions of a peace, these are decisions of a bargaining power, right? Everything we do, in some sense, there's lots of efforts each side can make to 
alter their bargaining power in this conflict and, and alter their actual bargaining power in future conflicts, both through actual investments and also through signaling. Mm, yeah. And and that's a lot. That's how to explain a lot of what's going on is we're we're fighting a war now because we're, we're thinking about all the future wars we want to avoid. Right. And, or, or more importantly, the future wars we know will be avoided, but we'll be in a stronger bargaining position. We'll get a better deal without violence than before. Yeah. Yeah, so I laid out just a second ago the kind of reputation escalate, like the argument for escalation on the basis of trying to show how how fierce you are from from NATO's point of view. Mm-hmm. Interesting thing is, like Russia internally could have a similar kind of argument where they're like, "Well, we deployed all of our troops to the border and threatened to go to war, and if we back down now, then people are just never going to take our threat seriously again. So we have to go to war, even if we think it's a mistake in this case, just in order to like again convince people that we're willing to go to war in in, in future cases, so people don't laugh in our faces." Yeah, that kind of face saving, if it's about signaling reputation, can happen. I think it's maybe a little exaggerated and and all sides recognize this. And so finding mm. ways that Russia can save face or sort of like a natural peace building strategy. Yeah. But a special case of this is something political scientists call audience costs, mm. which is that if we think that Putin would be deposed if he lost, then on the one hand, you might think, great. Glad to see you go. On the other hand, that is an incentive for him to just keep fighting beyond where it makes any sense whatsoever. And so there's there's a certain logic to letting someone like Putin not lose completely and letting him save face in order to, and at paying the price of knowing that the regime will not change, but at least it will end the war. Yeah. Okay, I'm not sure exactly what to take away from from all of that, but I suppose that's <laughs> that, that's natural at this case, stage of the situation. I think if we tried to tie it uh, tie it up more neatly than that, we would, we would still be proven wrong by events in just a couple of weeks. So I think it's a good example of how it's really useful for me. I find it really useful to have this analytical frame and the five forces to sort of analyze the situation. Yeah, but despondent because even with all the information available. And even in retrospect, looking, you know, afterwards, it'll be difficult to really say it was this. Yeah. And so there, you have to have, you have to be comfortable with the degree of uncertainty and ambiguity and like what we know. The good thing is, is at least it's a little bit more organized than the messy way, you know, I was thinking about it before. Yeah, I mean, I mean, one, th- one thing I just take away, which, uh, you know, you already know, but it's like always good to be chastened by events is just how hard it is to predict the future. Yeah. That... You know, I talked earlier about like my estimation of the military situation as if I had put thought into it, as if I had like actually analyzed or collected any information. But it's not even at that level. I just kind of assumed that Russia was like in a right. far stronger military position. I mean, as if any of us, as if either of us could have found <laughs> Ukraine on an unlabeled map five months ago. <laughs> right. right. So we're all I, 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 I hope I've maybe stressed that in some way that this is, you know, uh, yeah, I know enough to be dangerous as most of us do. Yeah. But but I yeah, I guess all the way I justify this is I, th- I think there's some use there's there's a lot of use in bringing these lessons from dozens and dozens and dozens of other wars to try to organize what people talk about so i rather than sort of say this is what i think is going on again try to do this thing of just sort of classifying and organizing the way people are talking about it and then of course i shoot my mouth off about what i think will happen and i'm often mispredict so but yeah you know hopefully not too terribly yeah 
Yeah, I, I wish I, I wish I could. My performance could rise to the level of me being wrong because of something I thought about a lot. <laughs> wrong yeah. because of something I didn't even think about at all. I mean, this, this is a part of the book actually that we won't get to talk about very much. But you have this observation that we tend to be very cautious and circumspect about our opinions about things that are closer to us because we understand the details and the difficulties, and then we're more confident about things the further away they are because precisely because we don't know <laughs> what we don't know. Yeah, a lot of ill is done in the world by having you know. People go and be in charge of policy in a place they're not familiar with. Yeah. Which could be in their own city. Yeah. I mean, what, what do you think? So before being too humble, do you think that if you were combined with someone who knew a ton about the specific Ukraine-Russia situation, that you would be able to add, add value because of the frameworks that you bring to thinking about these things? Like you might be able to structure their thinking somewhat better than, than they might if they're just someone who you know follows politics in that region. Right. Well, I mean, I think, yes. I mean, only because I think just not knowing much about Ukraine, but having a lot of practice at helping people analytically organize arguments and think and, and remind people of strategic incentives, I, I do add value. Like I, I blog, you know, I, I, I blog and tweet and, and write articles a lot and I avoid things when I'm just too unknowledgeable. But mm. I actually, I feel totally comfortable doing this, not because I am a specialist, but just because there's not enough people calling attention to these psychological and strategic logics. Now, it would be even better <laughs> if I knew something about it. But here we are. Yeah, we, we can only know so much. Let's turn to what practical lessons we can potentially take away from all of the above kind of political science thinking. Mm -hmm. So I'm involved in the effective altruism in long-termist research communities. And, and in those groups, we have this special desire to reduce the probability of a great power war because we think that's the kind of war that could have really big and persistent effects that could make the future worse for many generations, even lead to extinction. And for more or less the same reason, we're particularly concerned about the use of nuclear weapons or other unconventional arms, such as bioweapons or cyber attacks, and also future technologies that could be particularly destructive, such as, you know, weaponized AI. Yeah. And I guess actually something we haven't talked about much on the show, but is interesting and hopefully will come up in future, is that there's this fear that an AI that's programmed to engage in retaliation mm -hmm. or to use blackmail or to engage in random escalation for strategic reasons, for kind of all of the game theory things that we've been talking about, that that could be disastrous one way or another in its interactions with people or other AIs. I guess both if it's programmed to do that really well, yeah. and also if it's programmed to do that very poorly, or at least it does it in a, in a way that's inconsistent with the way that other actors on Earth behave. Anyway, setting that aside, the problem that we face is that kind of having identified that the above is really important, we find it really hard to find projects that one can engage in that might actually move the needle on any of them. So it's like, yeah. war with China is bad. Yeah, 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 yeah. Okay, so now what does that imply? <laughs> it's kind of not obvious. Now, yeah, your expertise is kind of uh, maybe more on the on the civil war side rather than great power wars. But I'm particularly keen to ask you a whole lot about this because I expect other, other podcast hosts won't, won't be as aggressive about talking about great power conflicts. Yeah, to start off with, are the drivers of great power conflicts different on average than the drivers of smaller wars, as far as you can tell? So a lot of the things that occur to me is are questions of scale and difficulty of addressing in a short time frame rather than fundamental theoretical differences in like what the diagnosis is. Hmm. Well, partly because every war is its own little unique flower, right? And and there's snowflake and and so you have to diagnose each time. I think, if anything, there's a common set of very difficult to resolve routes to great power wars, which is that in a city, we can imagine a, a superstructure, a criminal superstructure organizing the gangs and being that third party guarantor of mm. peace and security and commitment and punishing unchecked leaders and, and solving the five problems. And at a city or even a national level, states perform those functions pretty well. And we've 
proven pretty good at constructing those institutions. And, and as an individual, if I decided I wanted to really make a contribution to those, I could probably make a difference on the margin. Hmm. On the other hand, it's very hard for anybody, even the U.S. president, to think, how could we change the fundamental structure of the U.N. Security Council? Yeah. And so so there's a, a scale of human institutions where we don't yet have the solutions, and they're so big and slow and subject to lots of forces and competing actors that they're hard to manipulate. So it's so there's this fundamental problem of anarchy, meaning there's nobody above to sort of settle these disputes and, and resolve these five problems. And there's a difficulty of, of tackling that. Yeah. We still have tools, but we just have to be realistic. Yeah. We have to, we have to be willing to work on these low return margins. Yeah. One benefit that we have with great power conflicts, at least compared to civil wars, is that very often when you're ending a civil war, you're asking one or both sides to disarm. Yeah. And that creates this very thorny commitment problem. Where Absolutely true. <laughs> if you've been fighting a war and now you're going to give away all of your weapons, you're leaving yourself extremely vulnerable to the other side then retaliating against you once you've given up your basically your, your power within the, within the bargaining situation. And that kind of doesn't happen within great power conflicts these days. Like no one, no one really thinks that US is trying to colonize all of, of China yeah, yeah. or vice versa. That's true. And that makes great power wars easier to end than than civil wars. Yeah. I guess you might think that at the the higher the scale, the more it's the case that personal idiosyncrasies would be kind of cancelled out or like that a huge bureaucracy in a country as large as the US or China or Russia wouldn't allow <laughs> one person's tastes and emotions to to guide things. If only, right? I mean, we it's it is it is an amazing and unfortunate feat just how much Putin was able to personalize power, especially in the last 10 years. Yeah. And it's something that Xi Jinping is is apparently attempting to do. This is another country I'm not by any means an expert on, but but an attempt to sort of further centralize and personalize power in China seems to be underway. And that that too would make us the world a less stable place. That's not true. China's right now very power is widely very institutionalized, very widely shared amongst many actors. So it is a very checked leadership by the standards of an autocracy. But that worries me most of all of all of the current global shifts. That that's decreasing over time. Seems to be, or there's an attempt and there's he could be quite successful. Yeah. So, yeah, we really worry about centralization of power within within China and Russia. But something that really stands out to me is so so the U.S. used to have a norm like it's like maybe more, more worth talking about countries in which listeners actually live because they actually have some potential to shift things. It used to be the yep. case that in the U.S. you needed Congress's approval to declare war in another country. That has just kind of disappeared because. Uh, seemingly Congress doesn't want the responsibility of declaring war. They don't like intervening in foreign policy because then they can be blamed when things go wrong. So they're just kind of delegated power to the president with almost like unlimited authority to do things militarily and in terms of foreign policy. And I really do wonder whether it wouldn't be better if we could somehow find a way to bring Congress back into the picture of deciding whether the United States goes to war, at least like wars of discretion. Yeah, I mean, I think I think some more leeway has been given to the executive in the United States, I wouldn't go so far as to say they've you know completely given up that that power. I agree that's worrisome. You know, the U.S. is the one country that has probably taken decentralization a little bit too far. Hmm. Maybe not from a conflict perspective, but from a just yeah in capacity general. to get anything done. Yeah. So people, you know, I have colleagues who have thought a lot about this and sort of think this, the U.S. needs to be a little bit more executive, a little more centralized. That, that would be fine from my perspective. That's not the thing most countries in the world, even advanced democracies, have to worry about. Even Canada, where I grew up, 
is a surprisingly unchecked place, at least by formal political institutions, in that you have uh, a very weak upper house that's appointed. And so so you have a really just a single legislature. And, and if you get a majority in parliament, then as a prime minister, you have an enormous amount of power and there's no filibusters. There's no... So it's still a pretty federal place. Mm-hmm. So... So it's not totally in check, but but it's actually it's, so it's a little bit surprising to me how stable Canada is given that. And the only way I sort of explain it to myself, so it's a hypothesis, is that I think the informal institutions, informal checks and balances, what people are willing to tolerate are really, really powerful yeah. in Canada. So it's all these hidden institutions that check the power of the executive, or not in this case, but the, but the prime minister and, and a majoritarian party. So... So there's lots of ways to check power is one lesson. But I, I do think we'd be a safer world if even the more advanced democracies were a little bit more checked. Yeah. So of the five factors, another one that I can make an argument that it might not loom as large in the great power or, or nuclear war situations is uncertainty. Mm-hmm. Because like, you know, the US, China, Russia, they have such advanced espionage capabilities, such impressive satellites, plus also just lots of things are public about the, the military power of countries that are not, say, about uh, the, the power of a gang. Yeah. That arguably there's less need to engage or like bluffing is less plausible because the other side can just see whether you have the aircraft carriers or not. And maybe that helps us. There's an element of that. I mean, at the same time, I think we manage and our policymakers and our presidents manage to have, I think, really oversimplified views of what's going on in these other countries. Mm. I think we can all imagine what those are when the oversimplified views Americans hold of Russia and China. You know, one of the things I've heard about Russia is the extent to which the political class and the, this inner circle around Putin really bought into the rhetoric that the U.S. is polarized, going to have a civil war. You heard a lot of American press in the last year on the likelihood of an American civil war. Yeah. And I wrote a little bit about how the danger of overestimating that risk and, and, the, and the paranoid and I think alarmist stuff that was going around was that the danger was that other world leaders might start to believe it, hmm. even though it's false, because it's kind of in their interests. And so and then and so they think the U.S. is weak, ununified, time to make a gamble for Ukraine or something else or time to make a gamble for Taiwan. Right, right. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, Taiwan's a good example where the U.S. has kind of decided to take the bluffing approach, which may or may not be the the right idea but china doesn't know and i guess and maybe even the u.s doesn't know whether it would defend taiwan it seems like we're kind of gonna roll the dice if the time ever comes yeah i don't know how to think about like what the right thing to do there is you know i, I again from this perspective of strategic empathy you know i try to look at this from china's perspective and i say well what if like after the end of the u.s civil war the confederacy had gone down and i don't know, occupied the florida keys mm. and it just wasn't worth or possible to exterminate them and so now in Southern Florida, there was still, uh, and maybe it's not even a slave state any longer, right? So they're not repugnant, but maybe it's a repugnant system to us or a threatening system. But even if that's not true, there's no world in which Americans are like, yeah, you know, that's a legitimate political entity. <laughs> You're like, no, they lost. They're totally legitimate and they need to go. And the Florida Keys are ours. And I, I'd be super sympathetic to that. And so I, I can see how the Chinese regard this. And so it's a dangerous game. And at the same time, you know, the thing that we're standing up for in Taiwan is, I think, very noble, which is which is democracy and liberty. So it's really hard. Yeah. One of the interventions you discuss in the book that doesn't seem that applicable to preventing great power wars is kind of sending in peacekeeping forces. Yeah. 
Totally inapplicable, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Another one that's difficult to use, yeah, is having overarching sort of rules to police state behavior. And the issue there is... That could work. We, oh, really? I mean, okay. we do have rules. I mean, the International Criminal Court is a great example of an attempt to build in a set of impartial rules that no one nation controls. And, and it's it's actually potentially strong and capable enough and impartial enough that that's the main reason the U.S. is one of the only countries that's not a signatory. I see. So it's, it is a little bit rich right now for Biden to be recommending an international criminal court, you know, proceedings against Putin when the U.S. has refused to sign on. So I think it's possible to create impartial rules. But I mean, I guess the fact that the U.S. doesn't sign up is kind of a sign of how it's challenging once you're a powerful enough country. Yeah, although it's been working reasonably well in spite of that. And mm. and you can ima- I can imagine a world where they do sign on at some point. Likewise, you can imagine more like right now, the sanctions reaction, the sanctions unity and regime towards Russia is is super selective and super. And I don't want to call it hypocritical, but it's it's in the West's interests. We're We're using it to punish or deter one invasion and one set of actions. Like there's all sorts of worse things that have happened in the last 20 years where we didn't do that. And there have been times when the U.S. has gone and invaded other countries and evaded any set of sanctions rules that were more impartial, that punished any power, great or small, for for such a thing would, I think, would deter peace. And, and I think that's I think that's not inconceivable. Yeah. Okay, so I suppose... Yeah, it is possible to create structures that partially constrain great powers, I guess, or at least like that raise the costs of bad behavior for them, even if it doesn't actually prevent them from doing those things. Yeah. That's the basic idea. Yeah. And I guess and maybe you have this issue that you can sign treaties that you could then get bound to, like, and even if later on you don't like it, you're still kind of stuck with it. Absolutely. I mean, Eleanor Ostrom, who I talk about in the book, and Amos Sawyer, a Liberian political scientist who I talk in the book, talk about something called polycentric governance, which... Mm-hmm is one way of saying decentralized governance, but not just decentralized across branches of government or decentralized downwards, but supranational governance. So international treaties. Every time we create a set of international treaties and agreements that do bind us and do come with penalties attached if we abrogate them, then that that does bind the hands. That's another way to check rulers. Yeah. Are there any kind of particular interventions to reduce the risk of rape power wars that, that jump out as like more relevant than the others? Yeah, great power wars are the thorniest because it's very difficult to distinguish a intervention institution that's done to pacify the situation from one that's just trying to elevate the bargaining power right. of one side. So the only way to think about it is like if you have two great powers in conflict, what can the third great power if neutral, do hmm. to mitigate the risk of conflict. There, I think there are some tools, but otherwise, everything you do, everything you do, is really just a weapon of war or a weapon of competition. Right. So this is—is is this this kind of offsetting issue that I was talking about earlier? It could, so yeah. What would I think? It's you know I haven't thought this through, so I have to sort of. So I don't know. I mean, imagine the United. Imagine there's a great power war brewing between you know, Russia and China, mm. you know, that's not happening, but there's some, or Russia and India. I mean, uh, or China and India, I, mm. I should say. I mean, what what can you do as a as a third party to, to tear that? Well, I think you could go and you could tell the, is that any aggressive actions, any first movers, we are going to punish with sanctions. You could, you could try to use what tools you have. Mm. You could also try to mediate, right, which they would. So this is what Israel and and Turkey are trying to do in the context of Russia and Ukraine is is take a very costly stance, which is to maintain impartiality hmm. 
and and try to help these two sides bargain. And so great power, a third great power could do this. But unless there's some third powerful party, even if it's not an overpowerful party, but unless there's some third powerful party that can do these things, then there aren't any options. Because just no one has the resources to meaningfully shift the incentives. Right. Or or you need to construct this international architecture that constrains everybody. Right. Or at least constrains the great powers. Does that make it, I suppose, so you have like a bunch of very powerful countries, but you could have an alliance of smaller countries that then might be able to act as if it was a larger country. But I suppose doing that is kind of just adding another great power to the mix. Yeah. And then it's like now you've got like an even more multipolar world, which sounds worse, potentially. I mean, I think like we talked about how it cuts both ways, but I do think that ideas of universal human rights and brotherhood and sisterhood is pacifying in the sense that we have sympathy for others. And so we're less likely to to go to war about them. I think the economic entanglements we have through trade are very protective. Hmm. So I think untethering ourselves from the Chinese economy too much or too rapidly is not stabilizing. Yeah. Even if it achieves other national goals, that's something Americans can vote on and decide on. Yeah, entangling China in our in our lives as much as possible through immigration and trade and social exchange and watching their television shows and making sure they get some Netflix or something mm. are all going to, on the margin, I think, help a bit. They're not like magic solutions. Yeah. That strikes me as very important. Yeah, the like entangling economies and cultures and people is one of the interventions that you talk about a bunch in the book. I mean, that that's mm-hmm. one that I was very optimistic about <laughs> back in 2015. Yeah. And then it seems it's it's one where people have noticed that the entanglement does reduce uh, or like maybe it does make war less likely, but it also makes you vulnerable to the other side. It also like potentially weakens your position against them, at, at least if you're, you know, buying military equipment from them or something like that. There's, 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 there's some that have a, a greater problem there than others. Yeah, it's it's complicated. So yeah, there's some countervailing effects, like you say, like maybe but one why is India not united with the West on this? Well, there's lots of reasons, but one reason is they they depend on Russian military equipment for their entire military apparatus, et cetera, et cetera. But I think on average it's pacifying. Okay. But people also have had a tendency to exaggerate this in history. There's lots of enlightenment thinkers saying, Oh, you know, the Trade is and liberty is going and human rights are going to extirpate war forever. And that didn't happen. But but that doesn't mean it's not like an on off switch Mm. can still be helpful. Yeah. Are there any interventions that stand out to you in the context of preventing a major nuclear war? I mean, I think these arms reduction treaties and any effort and, and the invention of these International Atomic Energy Association to like monitor these things is maybe one of the most powerful things we can do to sort of systematically disarm. I think anything that improves the quality and rapidity of communications between Mm. world leaders are all things that we've been doing. What we would do further, I think maybe that just gets beyond, yeah, I'm not sure I have a good idea. It's not something I know very well. It seems like in the past, conflicts between or within smaller countries have sometimes prompted larger countries to end up fighting because they, they start a proxy war there and then that potentially escalates. I guess one thing you could take away from that is that, well, actually like preventing smaller scale conflicts is also potentially useful in terms of preventing uh, great power wars because they can escalate. I guess your model could also suggest that, well, it's an illusion that the war in the smaller country was actually causing the war, uh, the, the war between great powers. That just was the proximal cause, but not the deep underlying cause. Do you have any thoughts on that? You know, I'm think, trying to think of a concrete example. I mean, you might 
think of World War One, yeah, as an example where there's this Balkan conflict. But there, I think it's more of an example of what you said, which is that there's actually a fundamental strategic challenge there presented by Russia's rise, and Germany merely needed an excuse. So I guess most cases that would be my suspicion that these proxy wars escalate to larger wars, partly because there were fundamental disagreements rather than just some natural escalatory dynamic that can mechanically happen. I think I'm more skeptical about that. Yeah. I guess another case that is in the book is the um, Seven Years' War, where yeah. you describe the, the provocations by the by the Americans as potentially prompting that. But I imagine if there wasn't other reasons that they would have found a way to avoid that. I think so. I actually don't know what... I, I, I don't know enough about what was happening on the European side. Hmm. I suspect the flare-up in, you know, in these little interior forts between the French and the American colonists was maybe not the it's like a trigger yeah. in the same sense that like the assassination of 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 Archduke Ferdinand was was a trigger but but I don't know if it was the, I doubt it was the whole thing yeah I guess I mentioned earlier a way in which perversely electing a leader who's extremely oriented towards peace could potentially not make things safer but it seems like if you if every country has leaders who are deeply committed to peace, to whom war is repugnant, mm-hmm. that that does lower the risk of war because both sides would be willing to concede more rather than fight. And so you're expanding the range of deals that they think are better than, than war. I mean, any generalized notion of like human rights and the value of human right, life mm-hmm. and, and the value of the, the other stranger is going to be pacifying so long as everybody believes it, possesses right. it. It might even be pacifying if a lot... I'd have to think about it mm-hmm. more... It might even be pacifying if only some people do it. It's it would it would reduce your bargaining power. Yeah. In the sense because you're not going to be willing to to use war. Anything that makes war more costly to you but not to your enemy is going to expand the bargaining range in ways that are disadvantageous to you. And that's okay. like a real key. Whenever we think of things, you have to sort of think about is this something that's elevating the risk of war or is this something that's just changing relative bargaining power? Hmm. And they're distinct things. And a lot of things that we think, like a lot of people say, well, what about doesn't counterinsurgency tactics cause war and new technologies, new military technologies cause war? And I'm like, no, that's just relative bargaining power. And then you have to rebargain. Well, new technologies create uncertainty. So there's that channel. There could be that, I agree, uh, but they're principally shifting bargaining power. Okay, yeah. Yeah, do you have any other examples of things that people think might help in this context, but it's ambiguous or, or they don't help? So, you know, let me use an example from cities who want to reduce violence, say intergroup violence between gangs or interpersonal violence between individuals. Mm-hmm. There's often a, a sense of we need to like, in Chicago, they're like, we need to economically develop the the south side and i've been on radio programs in chicago and people are saying well you're doing this but what we really need are jobs 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 and that doesn't make sense to me for a few reasons Hmm. number one for reasons we talked about earlier making the pie larger smaller doesn't change the fundamental calculus so so the fact that these gang members have jobs available might not change the fact that there's whatever they're fundamentally competing against Hmm. but what's more important we could debate that. What's more important is just that it's totally untargeted, right? Hmm. Chicago's violence problem is two or 3,000 people. And so any strategy directed towards 500,000 people, uh, especially a job creation program that is probably never, never going to reach any of these extreme people, is a bad idea. So what's the analogy in the international arena? It's any sort of generic foreign aid that we give to poor countries that's not actually specifically targeting the roots of violence. Mm. 
mm. and the diagnosis of, of what's going on there. But it has this sort of like generic, poorly thought through feel of let's just sort of help Africa get richer and then there'll be less war. And it's probably not true. It might be good to do that for other reasons, but it's probably not going to reduce violence. So you really have to be targeted. And I think that's the lesson from cities to, to nations is that you have to really think about who are the violent actors and decision makers and focus on them. Yeah, I suppose. I mean, one thing that you have you have a section about how it seems like offering cognitive behavioral therapy to kind of at risk youth in that sort of context can significantly reduce the probability that they engage in in murder, which is which is very cool. And I was yeah. I was thinking this is the great power context being you know can we pay Joe Biden to go and get CBT therapy or how much <laughs> would you have to pay Xi Jinping to go to a, to go to a course? I actually think even if you could do that, I'm not sure that it would help because that's the context where these decisions are not made in the heat of the moment in the same way that gang shootings are. I think you're right. So I think I think a lot of CBT around violence is doing a few things. One of the things is it's trying to help you cope with that hot reactive, reactive violence. Yeah. And, and that's not the thing that we think is driving a lot of wars. Maybe personalized dictators. But the other thing it's doing is a lot of CBT, and this includes CBT, like basic marriage counseling, is all of these misperceptions, yeah. these availability bias, these, these projection bias, these hard, rigid, poisonous views that we have of our adversary, our tendency to interpret their actions in the worst light possible almost automatically without really, and, and having an inability to see it from their shoes or have any strategic empathy. Those are really, really, really common problems of interpersonal conflict as well. So mm-hmm. it's not just passions. And, and so that is what CBT is really good at helping people get over. Right. Yeah, we're actually kind of recapitulating a bunch of stuff that I discussed with Robert Wright last year, where he um, he has this movement where he's trying to promote peace and reduce conflict, which involves kind of getting everyone to slow down and meditate and do CBT mm-hmm. and so on. And I was like, ah, it seems very scattershot. Like most people aren't going to war anyway. You know, encouraging all of the like someone random to go and do CBT doesn't seem like it helps. And I was like, what about targeting it on the State Department? Get everyone in the State Department to do a CBT course or, a, you know, a, what do you call it? A perspective taking. Yeah, practice. perspective taking. Yeah. And I was like, hey, that, that seems more targeted and, and more useful to me. That's, that's what we call effective bureaucratic design, in, right. especially in, like a, in, a, in a diplomatic organization. Is Yeah, you want people in the State Department and National Security Council to be really, really, really good at perspective taking, strategic empathy. Yeah. Really, really good at recognizing their biases. That's, that's creating an institutional culture. And you want them to question bad information and, and rather than punish them for it. Right. So, so there's there's some principles of organizational design that I think are really important that are less about CBT. And more about rational analysis, improving the analysis. Yeah, and just avoiding some of the problems of some of the, yeah, some of the group dysfunctions. Yeah, I, I think it will be hard to pitch that to, <laughs> for example, the State Department on the basis that it's pacifying, but it could be possible to pitch it on the basis that it improves the quality of the recommendations because you understand the other side better. It allows you to actually get more of the pie. I mean, I think there are, and I actually go further, I think the many of our national security leaders are very aware of this and they deliberately design practices. So they have things like red teams whose their job is to like take down the analysis. You know, I think Obama, uh, President Obama in particular was, was known for, uh, and even George W. Bush as well, like sort of going around the room and sort of like, what do you think? What do you think? What do you think? What do you think? Before consciously not telling people what they think mm. ahead of time to not bias, they wanted to sort of get 
that is, is unless varnished opinions. And so there are lots of things as a leader, as an organization, you can do and institutionalize to reduce this. And, and I think actually a lot of our national security apparatuses in every country are pretty good at that. Yeah. That's maybe what my colleague thinks has fallen apart in this insulated, personalized dictatorship in Russia. Yeah. So over the last few months, I've had some people get quite angry with me when I've tried to explain what I like Putin's motivations using this kind of rationalist strategic mm-hmm. analysis. And, you know, but my goal is to say, no, this is good. It's like, it's good to do this. You have to set your passions aside. You have to set your moral convictions aside and, and aim for understanding. But like, I'm at risk of losing my moral compass or like both of us are at risk of losing our moral compass sometimes and becoming too compromising. And indeed, I guess, could it weaken your strategic bargaining position if you become too sympathetic to the other side through this method of trying to understand them better? I guess if you believe, I mean, if you if your intangible incentive is we have to punish wrongdoers. Mm. And, and people who don't share that and putting themselves in a mindset of not sharing that. Yeah. I mean, punishing wrongdoers, no matter what, is a little bit like this intransigence that will Mm. probably, you know, continue the current fight and then maybe increase our bargaining power in future. It's it would be fine if people were doing that in a considered way. I do think like, listen, if those same people were getting just as mad over Xinjiang and getting just as mad over 12 other things, if they if they could tell me about the horrible things that are going on in Ethiopia, if they were internally consistent that would be a lot more credible. Hmm. But it, if it's when it's an ally and if it's an ally in Europe and it's an ally who has the same skin color as me and all of these other things that like make us right. a little bit more prone to get mad about this human rights abuse and not others, I think we need to be very suspicious of it. And 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 sadly, I have yet to talk to one of these people who feels so strongly that can even tell me the first thing about what's been going on in Ethiopia for a year and a half. And so I'm I'm I think I'm right to be suspicious of that. Yeah. Yeah, I have somewhat tracked what's going on in Ethiopia. It's an interesting case where it might actually be much easier for us to lean on Ethiopia because they're like more of an ally that there's mm-hmm. more, <laughs> and and like much less powerful than Putin. And so like, you actually do a lot more good in terms of human rights, potentially by creating strong incentives for groups that want to be aligned with you. Yeah. Or, you know, I know a little bit and I know some people who know a lot. And, and the alternative is that the U.S. government could actually have fumbled and done the opposite by giving too much support to the Abiy regime and and demonizing the Tigrayans too much. I mean, the, both neither side is is acting particularly well. But but I I do think there's there's a way in which we look back on this and where one of the things that led to this conflict was the U.S. government actually not making a concerted effort to find help these parties find agreement. Yeah, and maybe even doing things that are counterproductive. Yeah. An audience member, I wanted to ask your views on democratic peace theory. I haven't spent much time on that because it seems like our ability to change whether great powers are uh, democracies or not is somewhat limited. So it's not clear right. what the intervention is. But yeah, what do you think of, like, well, how large do you think the effect is of being a democracy on reducing your warlikeness? So this is an area where I think that the, the theory and a lot of the casual empirics are really strong and then the hard tests are pretty rare and mm. or, or, you know, difficult to believe fully, but I'm partly convinced on the basis of the, the, the idea in the case. And it, it goes back to this broader point about over-centralized power being the root of accentuating all five kinds of conflicts. Like it, it mm. mechanically is going to make leaders more unchecked and less likely to internalize costs, but it means we're at the mercy of their misreceptions, we're at the mercy of their intangible incentives, there's more uncertainty, they can't commit. And so it just aggravates all these sources of war. And I think that 
is to me a very plausible rationale for why checked, highly checked and balanced societies very seldom go to war against anyone or against one another. And when they do go to war, it's usually against a relatively unchecked society where, where they can't find a mutual bargaining range. But I'm careful to sort of talk in the book about these sort of checked and balanced societies rather than democratic, because mm. democratic people think means that, you know, most people just leap to thinking is the, is the president elected or not? Yeah. But then there's a lot of countries like Liberia where you're electing a dictator every five years. That's a slight exaggeration, but, but they're just not, they're not that checked and balanced. They have a lot of uh, autonomy. And, and so an election for the executive is actually not the most important check from my perspective for peace building. It's actually the division of power within the country across branches of government, across levels of government in the country and, and to these like supranational organizations. So anything that does that is going to make things more peaceable. So I totally buy democratic peace theory. But the idea that it's just like some simple, oh, if we all had elections for president, we'd have a peaceful world, that that's not true. Yeah, I guess I think people talk about kind of thick and narrow conceptions of democracy. And I used to think that yeah. the people who were trying to use a thick definition of democracy were like slightly cheating, but they, they just define everything that they like as democracy <laughs> and call it yeah. that. Um, and that happens I, too. I think there's there's something to that, which is like anything that is good is, is democracy and anything that um, isn't isn't. But I, I think like I've come to think that the thick conception of democracy where it's like spread out power, like people have more information is actually the more useful concept than the narrow one where it's just like, do people vote at some point? Right. I mean, that's why I, I mean, I think, I think China is a relatively stable place. Not, it's not democratic, but it's a relatively checked and balanced place. Yeah. Could be more, of course. And that would make the world a safer place. I've heard a decent amount of skepticism about democratic peace theory. And kind of the, the mm-hmm. argument goes that democracies like the US, it's not that they don't engage in wars, it's that they engage in wars that they can win <laughs> because they they have better decision-making apparatus. They're less likely to make massive mistakes, but nonetheless, they have interests. They're in conflict with other countries and sometimes they end up fighting them and winning them and, and getting the thing that they can get. And also, you know, the US isn't at war with Venezuela, but it's engaging in awfully crushing sanctions that kill a lot of people. And it seems kind of like war, right? <laughs> it seems like borderline war. And, and they're doing that because they can get away with it and it's in, and it's in their interests. So there, there could be a kind of whole lot of quasi-war behavior that democracies engage in, or like brief wars or like intimidation where the other side is stood down on the basis of threats of violence that are going on that kind of might get encountered here? Well, I mean, so I would say, listen, the yeah, strenuous, hostile competition and the wielding of hard and soft power in order to obtain objectives using every means necessary other than armed invasion mm. is totally normal. And what distinguishes that from most war in in one sense is other than the explicit use of armed violence is is the fact that it's like the whole thing that made war not happen or most kinds of war violence not happen was that it was super costly and there was a better way mm. it's not clear that there's a better alternative to these other tools that democracies and other countries wield in order so i'm not saying that democracies don't pursue their own interests that they're not self-interested I'm suggesting that they mostly, because their power is checked and balanced, they don't engage in activities to attain what they want that are really, really costly to their own people. Yeah. So that doesn't rule out bad behavior. So if if we want to say, well, is there like democratic harmony? No, I don't. I don't believe in democratic (laughs) harmony. Right. I believe in democratic peace in the sense of they're they're less they're far less likely to actually go go to have this highly inefficient thing called warfare. Yeah. 
I mean, this kind of raises an interesting conceptual point that the reason we expect countries not to go to war is that it does a lot of harm, like a lot Mm -hmm. of people suffer enormously. But now let's look at the US sanctions against Venezuela. It's like potentially many more Venezuelans are dying due to the sanctions than might die if there was a full-on invasion. Yeah. I mean, in this strategic story we're telling, you don't care about costs to the other side of your actions. But I mean, well, it is costly to the U.S. because they can't buy Venezuelan oil, right? So it's I'm saying it's not particularly costly. If Venezuela had a monopoly on oil, that would be true, and we would not be having sanctions on them, right? And the supply, you know, the elasticity of supply of oil is pretty high, and so I see. So it's true. There's some people paying. There's all these refineries in the southern U.S. that were built to sort of process Venezuelan oil, and they're kind of running silent, yeah, or not running, and that's there. So there's costs to pay. But but we're, you know, Americans are not bearing the burden of these sanctions. I see. So in the accountability story, the, the point is that they, they haven't gone to war in a way that would harm the United States because it's a democracy and leaders would lose if that happened. But it's totally consistent with the story for them to harm people in other countries because Venezuelans don't get a vote. Yeah. And, and we're quite willing to sort of support conflicts like many aspects of the drug war if we can export some of the costs as well. Or, no, you know, any that's true of any any group. So... So we might have a very different, you know, drug policy if we had to face some of the consequences that Mexico and Colombia have to face. Yeah. A slightly facetious question. Back in history, kind of during, you know, 14th, 15th, 16th century, my understanding is that countries would sometimes effectively exchange hostages that exchange Mm -hmm. members of the nobility in order to make it more costly to declare war on the other country, because then the hostages would be would be killed or at least would be at risk. Yeah. They would also marry each other's children to one another, right, right. which is another kind of hostage taking, according probably in the eyes of some of these princesses of and the princes, people who but, were married off. Yeah, yeah. I'm not sure that they were getting a vote on that. I, I, it doesn't seem like we've come up with an amazing list of things that I feel like we can fund in order to stop the risk of war between China and the US. But given that both sides in that conflict would regard it as catastrophic to have a war, I imagine, is there I'm anything building that we all can... our iPhone? I'd rather, if you said, do we want like five <laughs> five Chinese hostages or all of our iPhones get built in in, yeah, in China, in, in know, China you... then I, I, I'd take the iPhones. Yeah. So that's and, the interdependence argument. Right. So I think that's that's part there. They, yeah, that's what the marriage and the hostages were just trying. Well, they're not the hostages. But that's what the marriages were trying, trying to do. Yeah. I mean, so we wouldn't actually do hostages now, but you could have like you could have an agreement where it's like many very important people from both countries go and live in like the capital city of the other country. So effectively, they're in the firing line if some if things go wrong. Right. You know, I don't know how exactly this works, but the fact that the U.S. holds the gold reserves of many countries is maybe a little <laughs> bit like hostages as well. I don't, I, I'm not sure how that works legally, but the fact I, 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 we're all a little bit more interested in this now that they're, you know, they seem to hold all of Afghan, all of Afghanistan's money. Yeah. So that is a that is a tool of leverage. Yeah. So, so the U.S. is trying to disentangle itself from the Chinese economy to some degree. And I guess it seems like China is kind of disentangling itself in some ways from, from the rest of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Do you have any comments on trade policy here? Are you like against that on balance because it could make the risk of war uh, higher? Yeah, I don't actually know how much of it is actually happening or if it's just like decreasing a trend. So I, I don't know the numbers. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I'm sympathetic to the idea that I think the U.S. has a lot of domestic political problems and inequality because, you know, globalist elites like me rushed very quickly to seek a more integrated world economy and there mm. were winners and losers and then we forgot to compensate the losers. So mm. uh, so that's the source of a lot of political ills in the country right now to some degree. And so addressing that is just smart, stable domestic politics. Mm. I, I, I have to think that can be balanced 
against the desire to remain entangled with China. And frankly, I'm not that worried. I mean, I feel like the incentives to remain entangled are so high. I'm not super worried of like a huge rollback. I see. Yeah. Maybe I should be, but... I guess, yeah, to wrap up, there is this kind of controversy among people who I read about how optimistic we should be about war having been reduced over the last 70 years and what are, what are our prospects of a major war over the next 100 years. You know, Stephen Pinker famously kind of argue, is, is fairly optimistic about this, takes a fairly positive tone. Bear Braumolo, who we're talking about, wrote this book kind of arguing back saying, no, it's like the dynamics that cause wars to start and escalate really haven't changed so much. They're like both really smart people I respect who have like some statistics yeah. on their side. Where do you kind of come down on this? I mean... I mean, of course, in the middle. <laughs> That's where I've come down on a lot of these things. I mean, I, I maybe I lean a little bit. I, I do think like our architecture institutionally and a lot of things that Pinker talks about, states and norms and humanitarian revolution, I do think mm. those have moved the needle a lot. Yeah. And so I'm and I and I think the destructive power of our weapons mm. have have contributed to that. But I don't share like an unadulterated optimism that like I, I think I think the warnings from someone like Bear and many others are like absolutely correct mm. that we're not we're I, you know we can be like a little bit safer than we were in the 20th century but 20th century had some pretty bad moments so we shouldn't be complacent yeah yeah it makes sense all right yeah you've uh, we've already gone over time so I should uh should let you go yeah, I guess to, to wrap up, I'm left a little bit here a bit unsure exactly what I would order fund or, you know, uh, what, what, the, what the career implications of all of this might be. Although it, I, I think it's uh, really going to help the audience think a lot more a lot more clearly about these, these war and conflict issues going forward. Do you have any like more concrete suggestions for what listeners could take away in terms of actions that they could take? Sure. I mean, part of, you know, this is certainly I grappled with myself. And I guess I get up every day and work on this because I think it, it's possible to chip away in the margin. And I kind of wrote a whole chapter, but that's, was, that's the way I wanted to end the book. I didn't want I wanted to end the book in a, in a concrete way as well. So rather than just have like a, oh, everything's getting better. I was like, okay, here's, here's how to operate better. You know, one thing that I, I mean, I think I'm trying to do, but I think any, a lot of people can do is I think it's really important to change the conversation. I think it's possible mm. for individuals to shape how people think about and talk about conflict. Mm. And that can be in their city uh, very easily. That could be internationally. I do think a lone voice in Congress, even if it's not a, even if it's an aide who thinks about, who sort of reminds people that this is costly and not the natural thing and or, or reminds people of some strategic dynamic or some psychological factor or somebody who makes the State Department just be a little bit more accountable, a little bit more aware of biases, that would be a huge contribution. I think individuals can do that kind of thing all the time. So you can change conversations and you can do that in any field. You can change the conversation in poverty alleviation. You can change the conversation in public health. And partly because it's it's actually worrisome how easy it is to change the conversation, but because I think it's unsettled. I, I mean, then the question is like, how do you how do you get there? Is that's kind of the thing that happens in a lot of my office hours? People are like, okay, okay, now I want to do this. Like, what do I actually? What are like the concrete steps that I take? And you know, if it's young, the first first person is, is most people are most people don't really think about knocking on the doors that nobody else knocks on. Hmm. So if I wanted to like actually change the conversation or change the mind of somebody. Honestly, if I were 22 right now, I would just start emailing deputy ministers in 24 countries, trying to just, in, like, middle and low-income countries, where I could operate in the languages I know, just to be their, like, aid, right? Because they don't have a lot of human capital, and nobody ever emails them to sort of say, you know, everybody's applying to whatever UN internship or something like that, right? But nobody's reaching out to these people, or nobody's going and saying... 
there's dozens of cities on the planet where where no one knocks on those doors. And I think you could make a real difference just by bringing, you know, if you're a Western person, you know, I think you're just bringing a certain sort of style of thinking and a level of education, level of human capital that is partly there, but not fully there. And that's kind of like the theme through a lot of what I do is I kind of go to, I don't go to, I don't, why don't I not work in Russia? I'm like, everybody else is working in Russia. Nobody is figuring out organized crime in Colombia, as far as I can tell. So I'm going to work there. I'm going to be the first person, or maybe not the first, but I'm going to be one of a very small group of people who are chipping away at these problems to change that conversation. And so, so, and I think that's been hugely effective. My guest today has been Christopher Byman. Thanks so much for coming on the 80,000 Hours podcast, Christopher. Thank you. Okay, just before we go, I also wanted to plug another new book out this week by a former guest and friend of the show, AJ Jacobs. That book is called The Puzzler, and in it, AJ goes on a journey through the world of puzzles, exploring why we love them, what they do to our brains, and how they can potentially help to improve the world. You can hear him talk a whole bunch about that book at the start of his episode on the show, which was episode 79, AJ Jacobs on Radical Honesty, Following the Whole Bible, and Reframing Global Problems as Puzzles. Kieran read an advanced copy of it and is willing to put his reputation on the line to say that it is a really wonderful book. You can find a link to uh, buy it if you're interested in the blog post for this episode. One other update actually from another previous guest and friend of the show, in this case, the academic Philip Tetlock, is that Phil is now launching a new forecasting tournament where they're pairing together experts on specific existential risks like pandemics, risks from AI, uh, nuclear war, climate change, and so on. So they're pairing people who are very knowledgeable about those existential risks with people who are very knowledgeable about forecasting specifically to see whether a combination of those two different forms of expertise could produce better predictions about how the world is going to play out in future than either one of them individually. That research project is called the Hybrid Persuasion Forecasting Tournament, and they're currently recruiting a whole lot of people to participate, both as experts in forecasting and as experts in existential risks specifically. Philip says that kind of some some key features of the program are having really carefully assembled collections of early warning indicators for risks, looking at the interplay between smart generalists and subject matter experts, and a measurement focused not only on forecasting accuracy, but also on the power of the explanations for forecasts to move other people's views, hopefully hopefully in the right direction. I think a lot of listeners to this show could potentially really be perfect to get involved in that. So we'll stick up a link to more information about the nature of the tournament and how you can apply to potentially be involved in the blog post associated with this episode. All right, the 80,000 Hours podcast is produced and edited by Kieran Harris. Audio mastering and technical editing by Ben Cordell. Full transcripts and an extensive collection of links to learn more are available on our site and put together by Katie Moore. Thanks for joining. Talk to you again soon.